0: This means something. So 1,100
1: men went in the war. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest. June the 29th, 1945. Anyway,
2: we the bomb.
0: Why it have to be snakes? Life will not be contained. Life breaks free it's expands to new territories and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but I'm
1: simply saying that life uh, finds a way.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's
2: Club podcast. I am Patrick Rapol. And I am Jim Laskowski. Very excited to introduce a returning guest and friend to the show. Uh, he's involved with the Chicago... Critics Film Festival, contributes to WGN Radio, he's a filmmaker in his own right, and he's an all-around great guy. Good old Colin Suter. Welcome
1: well, back. Thank you. That's quite an introduction. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, yeah, Colin, Colin was
0: on for the Joe Dante episode, and was there another one as well? Or Oh yeah.
2: David Gordon Green. That's right. David Gordon Green. Yep. Well, so- I'm very excited to see <clears throat> his latest movie this year. So David yes. Gordon Green
1: Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of David Gordon Green seems he's sort of returning to form. Yeah, like, for sure. Yeah, it's about time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, really, it just after after uh, your highness and the sitter. I mean, there's real, nowhere to go but up. So yeah. Yeah, and, and Prince Avalanche was definitely made a few major steps up and uh, a movie I enjoy more and more every time I see it. Same. Uh, so I'm I'm really anxious, and I've seen the trailer for Joe. It looks it looks terrific, and mm-hmm. uh, this kid, this Ty Sheridan, in this movie. Um, I mean, what a what a I mean, the, the 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 three directors this kid has worked with so far: <laughs> Terrence Malick, Jeff Nichols, and David Gordon Green. I mean, what a career kickoff for this! Yeah. pretty amazing. What, what Jeff Nichols movie was he in? Um, mud. He's it, the kid in Mud. The main. So kid. he's
0: the kid in Mud, and in because isn't Joe. Very similar premise to Mud. It
1: seems like it, yeah. kind of, kind of looks that way, but uh, you know, we'll see. And they're buddies too, so.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm. I'm happy as, as intrigued as I was by the concept. I'm happy David Gordon Green didn't actually follow through and do a Suspiria remake.
1: Well, that could still happen. <laughs> oh, really? It's not off the table yet. No, I mean, you know, it's it's still something that is gestating and and could conceivably happen and you know i listen i'm i'm in this guy's corner no matter what uh you know there was that dark period there a couple of years ago but uh i i still have faith in the guy and i think if anybody could pull off uh you know an interesting remake of that film uh he's a director i think can pull it off and you know he's never tried horror before but that's true um it, I'm very. It'd be very interesting to see what he does. I and mean, if it was some like hack director doing it, yeah, I'd agree with you. But um, the fact that he's got this much vested interest in it um, makes me more intrigued by it.
0: That's that's a very good point. I think most bad, uh, most more, I should say, most uninteresting horror movies tend to come from sort of directors for hire. Yeah, um, and even if his specific vision he has for Suspiria is completely whatever. Uh, <laughs> like it, it'll at least be his specific vision, apparently.
1: Right. It'll be it'll be an interesting little chapter in his, his in his career when you look back on it. You know, twenty years from now, um, you know, just uh, it's it's already. I mean, the fact that you know he he will try these projects, he will try and fail, um, you know, as he has done, uh, just makes him that much more interesting of an artist to me. So.
0: But I got the impression isn't the sitter wasn't the sitter more of a for hire sort of a thing?
1: I I don't know actually I mean I I don't know the, that much about of the backstory yeah. uh, behind him him get, getting hired for that but it seems to me like he he will he takes projects that he is interested in there must have been something in the script that clicked with him you know when he read it, I, I don't think he just said, I, well, I need the money, I'm going to do just do this stupid comedy. He doesn't strike me as that kind of a director. No. Um, you know, it, I mean, granted, after doing four really idiosyncratic dramas that nobody ever saw, um, you know, even in the indie community, that, uh, you know, granted, he probably did need to, you know, need something to pay his rent, but you know, I mean, he, I think he just got caught up in the idea of actually having an audience on an opening night for a film. You know, on a Friday night, people are going to see the new David Gordon Green movie, even if it's a piece of crap. I think he just got you know hooked on that idea after Pineapple Express was such. A <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and, you
0: know. and I think after Eastbound and Down, he became he pro- his, probably got his name. I mean, that and of course Pineapple Express got his yeah. name on some lists of. People right. What you call
1: when you have a comedy.
2: Yeah. He right. became
1: a comedy director first and yeah. foremost. Yeah. He became, he, he was in Apatow's camp, and Apatow mm-hmm. you know, has a pretty uh, solid uh, success, uh, you know, a, a solid track record for success. So, and I think he just wanted in on that just for a little while <laughs> before speaking- he goes back to making movies like Mud that nobody's going to go see. So, uh, s-
0: speaking of. Uh- Speaking of horror remakes that have very specific visions behind them, uh ha- has what? What do people think of the Psycho remake now? Do, are, are there people who come around and defend it? I hope uh, not.
1: I I, I have yet to see it to this day. I still have not seen it. Ugh. It's oh, so. <laughs> it's, it's it's hard really, to bring that discussion to a halt. But uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, no. It's just that is a. I mean that is if if there's any movie that you can defend as well, he was just doing an experiment and nothing more, right? Like that's, you know,
2: that's
0: there. There's nothing. There's like the fact that movie exists is cynical on the point of what Universal who owns Psycho or whatever studio owns Psycho. So but, it's
1: Universal, yeah,
0: yeah. But uh, but his work on it is not was nothing but uh, a, almost sort of an experimental. The, like film theory lark, uh, mm-hmm. and I can see people uh, coming back around to it and being a little more forgiving, uh, even though it just it. There's no way I can ever appreciate uh, the the miscasting that is Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates.
2: Yeah, or inserting images from Nine Inch Nails closer in a couple of scenes, which I just to this day. Like I remember seeing that in the theater when I saw that, I was like. This isn't Natural Born Killers. Why is he doing that? It made no sense. I don't remember them being
0: specifically from the closer music. Yes. Video. They yes. were?
2: Yes, they were. Yeah, I misremembered it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that was just something I couldn't believe I was seeing. Oh well. You know? You know what remake I kinda like? I like I like War of the Worlds. You know? That's a pretty good remake. Do you know who directed that? I like Funny your Cans- segue
0: voice. I like your segue <laughs> voice, Jim. Like you cannot segue a conversation without letting everybody know that your segue is coming up with your My, segue voice yeah
2: get a little bit of a higher pitch yeah, okay. maybe we can talk about uh, steven spielberg okay so patrick this is exciting because we've never done this before two huh? episodes in a row yeah about really? the same director really you've
0: never
1: done that before Wow. Oh, okay
0: no, we've done part two, we did John Carpenter and Mario Bava They both got part two episodes, two Halloweens
2: in a row mm-hmm. There was a year in between Yeah Oh, gotcha, okay We feel this is quite warranted I'm sure this has been a director people have been hoping we'd be covering for quite some time Finally, uh, when are people on the internet going to be
0: talking about Steven Spielberg? Yeah <laughs> You know,
1: yeah. <laughs> we really <laughs>
0: step up to the plate now
2: Enough with this Ellen Page stuff. Let's talk about Spielberg. I uh,
0: I, I, I I actually I, I think I conceived of this month more as a break, <laughs> as <laughs> as just uh it's it's almost just a month off because it's so easy to watch Spielberg movies.
2: Yeah, it is. It's been great. I've been in, I've been loving watching his movies on Blu-ray too. Because I
1: I'll, haven't had that experience in a while. Did you guys go back and watch everything? I mean, I, I don't have time. I watched the two that you guys told me to. You were going to talk about, and then I, I tried to. I, I and I, I tried to go back and watch as as much as I could that I haven't seen in a long time, and I only had time for one other movie besides besides these two. But I know his, his work. You know. Oh yeah. But, you know, grown up with it as as you guys have, um, uh. So I don't know how how many movie how many Spielberg movies have you watched in the last couple weeks, Jim. Um I would say about 6 or 7 okay. I think. Yeah. yeah. Did you go I mean, back no, and watch any of the stuff that like you s- haven't seen in a while and didn't think much of and then like, you know, uh looked at it again and was like, yeah, it's actually better than I remember it. Anything like that?
2: Um believe it or not, and this will probably come up on the, on part 2, but uh I actually really love saving prior Ryan. Okay. And I know I know people who sort of rag on the book ends. Of the film and be as, as being too sentimental and uh, kind of forced. But I don't know. Everything about it worked for me upon a rewatch because I hadn't watched it since I saw it in the theater.
0: I, uh, yeah. I, 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 I went back, I watched the Twilight Zone movie. <laughs> nice. Um, which I had never seen and was interesting. Um, by the way, in the future, I don't exactly know when, but I'm going to be doing a bonus episode with uh, previous guest Mike Flynn. Um, yeah. we're, both, we're both two guys who were born in 1987 and therefore there's a lot of sort of uh, films that are kind of 80s ephemera that you, know, you hear mentioned um, but you don't actually see because they sort of – they were big hits and then they sort of dropped out of cultural conversation like – uh, last like like cocoon, <laughs> like we talked about on the last bonus episode that was a it was a huge hit um and then just promptly, no one ever cared about it again um and so we're going back and we're watching some sort of eighties films that we'd always heard of and never seen uh, like what uh well, so far oh, we we both picked out a list and we'll, we'll reveal the list on the episode okay. uh, where it was one film of every from every year of the decade. So okay. so far, I've gone back. I watched uh, Blue Thunder, the Roy Scheider mo- sure. uh, heli- helicopter cop movie. All I right. watched On Golden Pond.
1: That's um, <laughs> a long time, yeah.
0: And, uh, and I watched a uh, Blind Date back when uh, Bruce oh. Willis was still a comedic
2: actor. <laughs> you poor thing. Right.
0: Yeah, that was that was. I got one for three there. I kind of like Blue Thunder, but you know, On Golden Pond <laughs> and Blind Date are just the dregs. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so it's, it'll be so that should be um, interesting. So that was sort of inspired by me watching Twilight Zone. The only other movie I had never seen before that I went back and caught up on was Sugarland Express, which
1: I think is a really good movie. Yeah, I have that here from Netflix, and I, you know it, it arrived yesterday, and I thought I was going to have time to watch it today, but I didn't. So I, yeah, I, that, that's it's always one I've enjoyed, but I haven't seen it in a long time. So you
2: know, yeah. it's interesting. I was actually thinking. For next year, I want to have uh, Colin on the show for a George Miller episode because I know he's quite the fan. Oh, Ooh, that would be good. And yes, and <laughs> then basically you're going to cover all the directors from Twilight Zone the movie. <laughs> yeah, except for, John Landis, of course. For so, Landis, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, Joe, you uh, Joe think? Dante. Which, by the way, Joe Dante has is clearly the best story in Twilight zone movie. oh yeah
1: yeah but but Miller's is right on the heels there Miller's is pretty great too there's something there's something
0: about John Lithgow as an actor that I just really don't like so uh, I, really? I can't I can't get behind yeah no it's I mean it is like it's the uh oh what's the de Palma movie raising <laughs> Kane. <laughs> yeah it's like in it, every movie it feels like every movie he's in is raising cane <laughs> whether or not it fits and it's just it's not like there are some crazy actors who go crazy and over the top, and I find them entertaining. Like when Nick Cage does it sometimes, but I never find him entertaining when he does it. I mostly just find him irritating. So, mm-hmm. and I understand that's just whatever. That's my own personal preference. Did you Miller,
1: see? Did you see? Uh, speaking of eighties movies, uh, Buckaroo Bonsai? Yes.
0: Yeah. You know, okay. He fits great in that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Because he's just uh he's just an almost non human crazy villain. Yeah. yeah. And it's just. It it works well, but for the most part, I don't like him. And I think his tone—I think he matches George, the way George Miller shoots the remake of uh, *Terror at Twenty Thousand Feet*. Like, I don't think he's was miscast. I just don't find it as good as the *Twilight Zone* episode it's based on. Yeah, um,
2: yeah, with Chatner, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. Wow. It's
0: weird. It's weird when you can make Shatner look like an underactor.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, <laughs> oh boy. Well, um, I don't think there's anything business-wise we have to attend to, not that I know of, other than we put up a bonus episode that was really fun, and there'll be another one coming soon. Yep, that's great. So let's move on. <laughs> Okay, um, Colin, we yeah. love asking the guests to go first, so okay. uh, talk about something that you've seen recently.
1: Okay, uh, not not, not too much in the theater, but um, last week uh, I popped in a DVD of a, of a actually a Spielberg production, uh, hmm. a movie from 1985 called Fandango. Um, Spielberg was, produced that? Spielberg, well, Amblin Entertainment produced it. Um uh, hmm. Spielberg encouraged uh, the director of the film, Kevin Reynolds, uh, who made a short film. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I have to pull it up. on I- A short film uh, uh, that Fandango was eventually based on, and he encouraged Kevin Reynolds to make it into a feature. And uh, Kathleen Kennedy and uh, Frank Marshall are listed as executive producers. It's from Amblin. So, in a roundabout way, yes, Spielberg is attached to that movie in, in some way. Um... And uh, a lot of people don't know about this film, and it's, it's a shame, because I, th- I think it's just a, a wonderful film, uh, Kevin Reynolds' best film. Oh, yeah. And it stars a very young Kevin Costner and uh, Judd Nelson, uh, who, you know, this is after breakfast, right after Breakfast Club. Um, and playing against his Breakfast Club persona, you know he's got glasses and a Marine haircut, and he's you know basically an ROTC, you know gung ho. I'm gonna fight for my country sort of guy. But he's also kind of a, a he's, he's his nickname is the Weenie uh, by by his by his friends. And um, you know this is takes place in the late '60s, early '70s, and you know it's about these college buddies who. Find out that they're going to be drafted because, you know, their grades suck or whatever. And uh, so they go on one last road trip uh, across Texas to uh, dig up this treasure uh, called Dom. And um, it's it's never really explained, like, how this – you know, treasure came to be known by these guys or anything. And and it's not it sounds like a Spielberg kind of a deal, like, oh, a bunch of guys going to look for buried treasure. But really it is a coming of age uh, film about male behavior and and um, you know these guys are uh, you know, you know, just sort of reckless and and just having, you know, one last fling before going off and getting killed in Vietnam. Or they might actually dodge the draft and cross over into Mexico and, you know, um, just live it up down there, which is what Kevin Costner's character is all about. He's all about avoiding responsibility. He's very much, you know, an eternal Peter Pan type, and Judd Nelson is sort of his adversary, you know, calling him on his irresponsibility all the time. Um, and it's just, I think, it's always been, it's it's for me, it's it's the first film, or one of the very first films I saw in my youth that I felt like I had discovered on my own, um, you know, I'd never seen it reviewed uh, on Siskel and Ebert. I never saw an ad for it in the paper. It was never in any theater that I knew of. And I, you know, kept pretty close tabs on everything that was coming out in the 80s. Um, and, uh, it was just suddenly on cable and it looked from the ads. It looked like the kind of movie that should go straight to cable. It looked like, you know, a bunch of another movie or a bunch of, you know, College idiots, dry you know, go crazy and try to get laid, and that's the whole point of the film. There was a lot of that in the '80s, um, uh, but it was on one afternoon, and then I, I saw the opening credits. and I was like, "Oh, Amblin Entertainment, what, what, what's this? Hold on, this might be good. I'm gonna keep watching." And there's something about the energy of it and the way it was shot and the way it was edited, um, you know, really called attention to uh, you know this director, this Kevin Reynolds, who you know nobody had ever heard of. And just said, wow, there's a real talent here. And I defy anyone to come up or with a better, funnier, and, or more frightening parachute scene yeah. is in this film. I, I've seen Point Break many times. I'm a fan of Point Break. But Fandango has the best parachute scene ever, in my opinion.
0: Hey, Jim. Uh, Agreed. Jim, yeah. what's that movie where Judd Nelson jumps out of an
2: airplane without a parachute? <laughs> this was a, an interest. it's very interesting that you brought this up colin okay because um i've been working at a church as an audiovisual technician and one of my co-workers he's actually a, a volunteer and he's 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 in his 60s and he loves talking about older movies he's like a walking wikipedia of older films and stuff and um i remember waking up in the middle of the night and checking my email and he sent me an email at two in the morning asking, uh, I'm going crazy. I'm trying to think of this movie where Judd Nelson jumps out of a plane without his parachute.
1: <laughs> and this was like a couple weeks ago that he did this. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, so, I know that. It's so Fandango. I, so Fandango is in like the collective consciousness of a bunch of people at one particular time. We all watched yep. this movie a couple weeks ago. and <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. yeah, There's something in the air. I guess so. Now uh, you have to watch this, Patrick. Especially well, that, if you're doing well, now, the '80s
0: thing. Well, now I have to. Sir. And, well, and that's it's, the thing is,
1: is that it's it, it's an it came out in the mid '80s, but it's one of those rare '80s movies that hasn't been you know, date, it's not dated. You don't look at it and go, you can tell this was made in the '80s. Maybe there's one shot. You know, there's there's a couple. Uh, there's a couple of dream sequences in the movie. Uh, they're very short, but you know they're all in Kevin Costner's head. He he, he, he The story is he uh, was dating this girl, and now that girl is about to marry one of these guys, who's you know in their in the group, and he's sort of you know having little pangs of regret about his behavior and everything. So there's one dream sequence that's kind of cheesy, and he's Kevin costner has kind of looks like a mullet kind of hair Um, that's about it though i I mean the rest of the movie really does have an authenticity to it It really does feel like it's in the early 70s in texas and you know um it just it, it you really feel like you are back in that time and the soundtrack is beautiful um the the guy the guy who plays the uh the parachute instructor I don't know where this guy went. This Marvin J. McIntyre is the name of the actor. This was his first film. And it's a hilarious performance. And then I guess he just started just, you know, doing odd jobs on television and stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's a really wonderful, you know, really quick 90-minute uh, little gem that nobody really saw or paid any attention to but I, it's got some really great funny moments and uh, a, a wonderful little montage at the end that, that kind of wraps everything up that's just beautiful so always been one of my favorite movies uh, go out and discover it Fandango was the name of the movie
2: yeah and the movie ends with Simple Minds playing and Judd Nelson pumping his fist in the air, right? Um,
1: the, the, the director's cut, yes that's
2: Oh, good. okay Actually no, it ends with one of my favorite one of my all time favorite songs if I recall. Can't find my way home.
1: Yeah, yeah, Ugh. yeah. That was, that that's was a perfect movie. Use. That was a movie that introduced me to that song, so uh know. Yeah. Is that cream? Yeah. Uh, close. It's Is it a blind faith?
2: Oh blind faith.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Wait, that's not cream? No, it's blind faith. Eric Clapton was in Blind Faith. I think Steve Winwood and, and uh, Eric Clapton were in Blind Faith. I think
1: it, oh, okay. It's a cream song in the movie, though, somewhere, isn't there? I think. Yeah. I remember
2: Credence is in there, too. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a
0: movie that mentions Vietnam.
2: <laughs> yeah, of
0: course. That's the, that's the laws of movies that mention Vietnam, is that Credence has
2: to be there somewhere. That's true, yeah. yeah. Excellent <laughs> um, choice. I gotta say. Yeah. I haven't seen that one in a while, and I should revisit it. Um, what have you seen lately? Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about LA's story. Oh, Rutherford. Uh, I know it kind of gets written off as like Steve Martin's Annie Hall, basically. Only it's his love letter to LA and stuff. But um, nothing I th- wrong. With that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think what he gets right is his uh, penchant to be. Unapologetically absurd in in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not necessarily like jerk level type humor, but there's just just these weird asides and cutaways and strange things that you know are just absurd. Yeah, and the, fact,
1: the fact that she plays the tuba. Yep. Is, you know, <laughs> like, what? Okay.
2: <laughs> right. Right. But I, you know, watching it now, there's there's a couple of things that don't sit well, like some jokes about. The weather and the traffic. I don't know. That 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 stuff is really tiresome at this point. You think it's just dated? Yeah, I don't know. It's just like those those jokes are so obvious. There was a
0: definite point in time, especially on television, where all jokes about LA, like there was just that everyone joked about LA's weather and traffic. (laughs) Like I feel like late eighties, early nineties. I when did when was LA story? That was like eighty eight.
1: I think it was 90. It was
0: 90. Okay, so it was right in there.
1: Yeah. I think, well, I think well, it's this. Was also, it was also the time when, and this is definitely directly you know, alluded to in the film, the joke of the uh, L.A. freeway shootings. There was a lot of people oh, yeah. shooting each other at that time. I remember that was a big news story at the time. And so that kind of dates the movie when they joke about that. I mean it, it's a, it's a pretty funny joke, but you have to know like there actually was – that sort of thing actually did go on. Um, at that time, and uh, and that's what the movie is referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still think there's some. I mean, there's still some really funny moments in that movie. I, I could oh, still yeah. watch it and have a great time, even even though I know like it's it's sort of a pro. It is a product of its time, and it would be totally. It would be a totally different movie today. I mean, the jokes would be totally different. Um, and I don't think. And as somebody who doesn't live in LA, you don't have to really. Live in LA to get all the jokes, and I'm sorry, am I stealing your thunder here? You're oh no, 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 your thing. I'm <laughs> That's okay. No, I'm
2: I. I think just there's a couple of moments involving Enya songs that are just <laughs> so cheesy. I was like, okay, is he is this yes. supposed to be a satire? All of a sudden, on romantic comedy
1: montages. I don't I re- know. <laughs> I remember at the time being pretty taken by that actually i you know probably today i probably wouldn't be but i remember at the time i had no idea when you was you know it was just yeah it was before she was a punchline i Uh, mean it has a fantastical quality
2: to the movie in general
1: yeah. yeah
2: so but i mean i still love it i really do i just think there's just like a couple of things that keep it from being you know a four star masterpiece because when i when i first saw it like, Steve Martin was my favorite comedic actor ever. Like, him and Bill Murray were my guys when I was younger and I saw this for the first time. Um, so, I mean, back then, I obviously wasn't looking at it with a critical eye. I just enjoyed his sense of humor and his unabashed romanticism. And, you know, it's kind of cool that he cast his, you know, now ex-wife as, as the love interest. Um, I believe they met on the set of All of Me. You yeah, think that's, you think it's cool?
0: Yeah, I think it's isn't cool. That, isn't that like one of the annoying things that people do is <laughs> <They just laughs> cast their like current wives and stuff in
2: roles and roles? And I think it works for the stories telling in this. And I, I mean, I think she's actually a pretty charming actress. She's, I, mean, I
0: think she's all right. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would definitely say that Steve Martin's strength as a comedian is his absurdism. Yeah, and so they're like to me the the end all bl all, uh, but i i watched la story for the first time i believe this year might have been last year i think it was sort of the end of last year but, anyway, but it was my partner showed it to me because it was one of uh, their favorite movies and um to me the end all be all of that movie is uh is the highway sign that used to be bagpipes <laughs> that goes oh to have my voice again yeah <laughs> like that kind of non sequitur when that happens in the movie is fantastic um but um, – so actually I think LA Story is interesting because it's sort of a really good counterpoint to like Zucker Brothers kind of movies. Um, it, and I mean it's a good illustration of like what makes those movies so successful, mm. which is those movies only care about ramming as many jokes into the screen as possible. Um, as fast as they can make them, as silly as they can make them. Like just joke, 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 joke. And so even when jokes don't hit, um, they're sort of like – they're just sort of part of the atmosphere. (laughs) Like they just kind of – they kind of pleasantly evaporate Uh, because I mean I love Naked Gun. I love Airplane but both those movies are full of really dumb, broad (laughs) jokes that are just like great if you're five years old. Um, but I think I'm it, still
2: five years old sometimes. So yeah. Know.
0: Well, I mean, no, and but and certainly not most or all of them. But even the really dumb jokes in those movies, they just are pleasant. Whereas because La Story is so earnest in points, yeah, it makes it really. Whenever there's a really bad joke, it always ma- it makes me cringe more. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, like that that dream sequence with Enya and that and and just in general, his like. I don't I don't buy his love of LA the way I would buy, say, Woody Allen's love of New York or whatever. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel uh the same way. He doesn't shoot LA like it's beautiful. He doesn't like you know what I mean? Like you know, like New York, Like the way Woody Allen shoots New York is he'll film conversations from across the street, so you get to mm-hmm. see all the buildings and all the people and and he will film Manhattan and make it look like you know, and make everyone just playing. You know, they'll just be in the background, and the foreground will be like the the bridge and just all of these beautiful landmarks and stuff like that. Whereas L.A. Story, it doesn't it doesn't really get that point across. It's just sort of here's an enchanting tale, and it happens to be in L.A. So isn't L.A. great? And,
1: I, yeah, yeah. I, I I disagree with that. I think I think well first of all let's be clear, Steve Martin didn't direct this film. He only wrote it and started. No, it. that's that's right. true. That's true. Mick, Mick Jackson is the guy who directed it. Um and you know uh I don't know what he's gone on to do since. I know he did the bodyguard, but whatever. Ugh. Um but I, I definitely think there's a visual texture to LA story that actually is uh kind of dreamlike and kinda beautiful. Um in moments, yeah, for sure. No, I mean I think the whole the whole the whole I mean I, I think LA does look sort of enchanting in this movie. I mean there's sort of like the there, there is a very the cinematography in the film is very stylized to make it look uh, like I said dreamlike and a little surreal. Um, so I, I definitely think it's it's not just you know your average romantic comedy cinematography, which is you know very flat and featureless. I, I think there's a real, there's a real uh, character to LA in this film that I've never really seen in, in another movie about LA. Um, and, I, and I also think one of one of uh, Martin's other strengths as a comedian, in, in this especially in this case, is that even though he's, he's poking fun at LA, it's not mean spirited. You know, that, yeah. that's 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 his that's been his sort of uh, his strength as a comedian altogether. Is you know he he he's not uh, you know trying to you know go for the jugular or anything like that, or trying to tear people down or take them down a notch. He's you know he he's. He's uh, you know just kind of having fun without really you know trying to um, take the fun out of everybody's life. You know
2: yeah, he's so. goofy and
1: kind of self deprecating. Yeah, there is definitely that. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I
0: 100% agree with you that LA looks you know that the movie's very dreamy and very stylized and that it's not shot like a standard romantic comedy. But I tend to see that more as a function of the tone and the sort of surreal humor of the movie than about the city as a place um i i, I don't i don't I, 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 I see it more just as it's a it's a dreamy movie like it just has a weird dream logic to it i don't see it yeah. as it's a dreamy movie because la is a dream to live in and honestly i feel like his sort of nice his sort of niceness is probably why a lot of the satire doesn't really work for me in la story because it feels a little toothless <laughs> like a lot of like when I think of all the you know, like really great satire, it tends to be very biting. Um whereas Steve Martin's just sort of joshing around and a lot of the jokes in this movie feel like things that he thought of while he was driving home from a party or something. <laughs> like like a lot of jokes are, oh, that's that'd be a fun response if, if someone says says something about this again, then I can do that. Like a lot of it just feels like sort of uh it feel it it feels like uh, specifically it's his version of L.A., which is when you're very, very rich and you work in Hollywood, um, which is to me, it's a different than sort of uh, Woody Allen's, though obviously all Woody Allen's movies are about very rich people, but it's, um, I don't
1: know. Like it's 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 just a limited point of view is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, it feels kind of limited and it feels kind of, insular and it feels like i mean steve yeah. martin didn't grow up in la steve martin you know you know steve steve martin started doing comedy i believe in in san francisco not la like it doesn't it doesn't feel like this is where he lived like this is super like he loves la so much it feels it more feels like that the sort of pleasant naturedness about it is just because it's kind of just a pleasant fun movie yeah. As, as opposed to a g- coming from a genuine place of love.
2: But it doesn't have the cynicism of something like The Player. I mean, obviously, <clears throat> that's more pointed satire about Hollywood.
0: But it also doesn't... I would also say it doesn't have the romanticism of Manhattan. Like, it doesn't have I mean, to be... Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying it has to be cynical. I'm just saying that if you're going to do a satire, uh, generally, I prefer it to be more biting than to be sort of just light, light dusting
2: this, <laughs> satire. I, there's I a moment involving... Um, an art museum painting that totally sums up about how I feel about uh, you know pretentiousness of art critiquing and I think that's very pointed satire that's also you know, kind of absurd not necessarily like in the, uh, you know, the other ways that the movie presents like uh, <laughs> the moment where he's like what's that clinging sound oh those are just my testicles you know, like, but that moment where he's looking at the painting and just seeing all these things that aren't at all there, it's just a red painting you know on the canvas it it's It's funny to see now because he's like uh you know kind of an art collector, and I feel like in that moment he's making fun of pretentiousness and himself. Well, no, that's. I
0: mean, there was always a level of self-deprecation to Steve Martin's humor. Like,
2: yeah. Steve Martin
0: majored in philosophy in in college. Like, his his humor is the smartest dumb comedy you could ever imagine. <laughs> like, that's what his stand up comedy is. And that to that, and I do. I I mean, I do, do want to say I like L A Story. Uh, I think it's a real. I do think it's a really funny and fun and pleasant movie. Um, but to I I think maybe framing it in terms of saying it's Steve Martin's Annie Hall is way overblowing, I think, what the movie
2: accomplishes. Yeah. I still love it. I mean, it's it was nice to watch, you know, on Valentine's Day with a bottle of wine. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Again, there are things that may be dated a little bit and some of the jokes aren't... They don't hold up, but... Uh, I I think it's just a nice... You know, blend of the things I love about Steve Martin. And yeah, Ed and Sarah Jessica Parker's great myth. Yeah, who knew? You don't say that very often. Nope. She's <laughs> yep. sort of the first. I. I mean, this can be argued to death about. Oh, you can go all the way back to uh, Diane Keaton or Shirley McLean. But man, does she play a manic pixie dream girl in that? And I. I, I feel like
0: that is almost her. Her. I think I. I don't know. I, I I feel like that is satir- satirizing rom coms. There, her character yeah. in L A. Story. I don't yeah. think. Yeah,
1: but, she- but but the the what? I mean, there weren't a lot of eighties rom coms. That rom coms, you know, at that time that it's referencing. You know, I don't think. Um, you know, I, I I I don't. I can't. I'm trying to think of like. An '80s rom-com that had that kind of a character, because you know, if, it, if it's, it's it's satirizing and referencing that, which movies are we talking about here? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I
2: don't know. If, hmm, that's a good point. So, uh, maybe just satirizing the I mean, idea. It's, it's a
0: long-time it. long trope. It's you can go. I mean, it's not '80s specific. I mean. Yeah, Jim mentioned Shirley MacLaine in the apartment. He mentioned Diane Keaton in Annie Hall. You can go back and talk about Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night. The idea of a of a of a fantastically fun woman who turns a man's life upside down and fixes all of his problems with her whimsy that's 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 it isn't a it wasn't it's not something that was invented recently. No,
1: I, no, I, 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 I understand that. I just I, I it's because LA moment. I mean, LA story is such a, is uh, a movie that's sort of in the moment. You know, in its moment yeah. uh, of sat, you know, and I and I really, I honestly don't think satire is the point of of LA story at all. I, I don't think satire is the is the game here that that Steve Martin is after. I, I think it's, I think it is a, I think it is a love letter to LA uh, in all of its flaws and all of its absurdities. And I, I, I do think I do find it genuine. Um, I, I don't think he's. He's trying to, you know, um, use humor to make a serious point about all the things about LA that are horrible or, or ridiculous or pretentious. I, I think he's he's in love with all of it. Um, I, I, I don't get the sense that he's 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 out for blood or or, or anything like that in this in this film. I, you know, I, I do think it is. I, it's not as Annie Hall, but I do think it is his Manhattan in terms of you know. Centering this this love story in this city, and you know it's. And uh, I, I I don't know. I I I think, you know, Steve Martin. Uh, well, I've made my point. <laughs> Steve Martin, <laughs> Steve Martin loved, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be talking in circles. So, yeah, yeah no,
0: I, I can I can respect that. I don't, Me too. I I think it has multiple aims. I I would say I think satire is one of them, but I agree that it's not all about. It's right. not all about attacking this city. It's not all about pointing out all the flaws of society in 1990 in LA it's but it's I think there's a fair amount of the film and the humor of the film does come from that place and I think that that humor doesn't work to me as well as the absurdism of him roller skating through a museum and that being like his fetish <laughs> like,
1: what have you seen Patrick
0: uh I watched the Furies uh have either of you seen the Furies to a, a Western from 1950
1: Mm-hmm. I have not.
0: It's the first Anthony Mann film I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, he directed Winchester '73, uh, Raw Deal, uh, several uh, westerns and noir films in the '40s, '50s. Uh, Raw Deal, not
2: the Schwarzenegger movie.
0: I don't. I was actually curious. I don't know for sure, but it's possible that the Schwarzenegger movie is a remake.
2: Because
0: hmm. it, because the Schwarzenegger movie is about the mafia and organized crime and Ooh. sort of it. it the schwarzenegger movie ostensibly has kind of a noirish story but because it's a schwarzenegger movie it doesn't play like that but um i could uh, i could see it Hmm. the the original raw deal that which i think came out like 47 or something being that but at any rate uh i bet that raw deal doesn't have a really great use of rolling stone satisfaction which (laughs) is my favorite part of the schwarzenegger raw deal is that (laughs) is that guitar riff starts and then he's driving around in this fucking, like, Corvette or whatever, blasting guys away with a machine gun or something. <laughs> that was a good moment. Um, no, The Furies is a really interesting Western um, about uh, a, a woman who, whose father owns the biggest ranch in New Mexico. Um, he's played by uh, Walter Houston or John Houston. I think Walter Houston. Um, uh, and it's Barbara Stanwyck uh, as the, as the woman, and he's a very domineering man, and so she's sort of grown up to be a very domineering woman because the only way that she can really get his respect is to always get the best of him because he doesn't respect anyone he can walk over. So, eventually, it's about her, you know the the ranch that they own is called the Furies, and it's a huge, huge, huge. Uh, ranch. So there's a lot of people who live on it uh, who are like squatters and people, you know, uh, Mexicans who lived there before, you know, the land was sort of just taken away from them unlawfully. Um, and it's about this woman and how she wants to run it her way and how it's sort of every step of the way she's thwarted by the fact that she's a woman and like people don't trust her opinion and she gets undermined by her father. And what's what's really fascinating is it's a Western but it's this kind of story. It's about you know sort of family politics and wealth and 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 uh, and manners and and uh, land deals and stuff. It feels like the kind of story that'd be in like a, a Victorian novel. Um, like it feels like a, a Jane Eyre uh, or a you know Pride and Prejudice sort of a, a story, but. The western, what the western setting does is, in addition to because it's a western, you know, there's a lot of scenes that are really, you know, that are just out in beautiful open ranges, and you know, a lot of the photography is beautiful. It creates this really great sense of danger because um, all these people are wrangling to take control of the furies, uh, and Hmm. at any given point, you get the feeling that one of them could just kill another one, Uh, and they all, and all the people, whether it's the owner of the bank who. The, the father took out the loan from, um, or it's the father or it's her. You get the feeling they all have enough wealth and influence that they could just murder someone um, and take their property and they would have enough wealth and influence to get away with it because it's against the lawless kind of wild west. Um, so it's this really, really intriguing uh, sort of uh, you know domestic family drama. And then there's issues of, obviously, of feminism. It's I'd say primarily it's sort of a really good uh, dramatization of sort of the patriarchy and feminism and stuff like that. And then also there's issues of race, because uh, one of the uh, families that squats on, their, on the Furies is a man that she's in love with, um, and her father then uses that leverage against her by getting that man hung, and then there's ideas of you know, is anyone who's fighting for this property actually have a rightful claim to it? Uh, or are they just happen to be white and rich and citizens of the United States and therefore, um, you know, and therefore that it's theirs? It's a really great uh, film. It was released by Criterion. They did a release of it. It wasn't released by Criterion, it was, uh, it had a re release or not a, you know what I mean? It's on yeah. DVD. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: it's in the collection and it's uh, really fast paced uh for a, for a 2 hour movie and again i so i've i've sort of dedicated myself this year to uh to educate myself and we'll see how what my, how well i stick to it i remember i recall a couple of years ago i declared that i was going to watch as many movies about the navy as i could and i think <laughs> i ended up watching like 4 so so let's see if i stick to this but the two sort of things i'm interested in are watching a lot more westerns um, and watching, uh, and then the, the next one's a much smaller subgenre, which is I'm interested in horror movies that were shot on VHS. That were shot uh, VHS, yeah, like like movie, like in the early days of video rentals when people were uh, just sort of cranking out any product to get into. Uh, video stores they were shot on like a video camera they shot on video cameras at the time they'd be shot on Betamax or VHS movies like video violence or I remember uh, that blood cult Uh, I I watched both video violences recently they're pretty Mm. horrible (laughs) but there's anyway like blood cult was fascinating because blood cult the technique the film techniques of it uh, feel like a real movie Like there's, there's panning shots And there's good lighting And there's cr- like a crane shot at one point But it's shot on a Sony Betamax So it looks like If you and your buddies When you were in high school running around with your parents camcorder Making movies Like if someone gave you and your buddies $20,000 <laughs> and, and Two months and A handful of people who were older Who could act Uh, but aren't necessarily actors. Um, It's like something like blood cult is what would, uh, it would spawn out. And so it's a really captivating kind of aesthetic because all the acting is amateurish and, and it looks horrible. I mean the, you know, the quality of the video and everything, but the way it's shot and the way it's, the music is done and the sound editing and the lighting and everything are really good. Um, (laughs) So it's a really strange dynamic, but yeah, no, I wanted to watch a lot more Westerns and, the Furies is interesting because it's the first Western I've ever seen where it's not about sort of the open range. It's not about uh, – like the the sort of the defining thing of Westerns is usually it's sprawled out over all sorts of locations and it's just about, you know, the wide open West and
2: mm-hmm.
0: all that. And whereas The Furies is mostly takes place in their mansion on their ranch. There's a – most of the scenes I would say are indoors. Um it's mostly a family struggle. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with outlaws or bandits or, you know, the sort of things that you associate with the Western genre. But be, but it's still undeniably a Western because the setting is so important and because the way it's shot and because of the sort of larger than life characters. Um, another aspect of the plot that has to do with the lawless West is sort of uh TC is the name of her father and TC has been writing IOUs to all of the people in this New Mexico town uh who who basically uh it's basically because his because the ranch is so huge a whole you know a whole industry is built on servicing the ranch and therefore a town is built around that industry it's sort of like that moment in there will be blood where He's talking about you know this oil derrick will bring new roads and new schools and new businesses and it will bring you you know so this whole town sort of operates on this ranch and he has been just printing up IOUs that look like currency they have you know really <laughs> elaborate uh, they have elaborate painting on them and they're calligraphied and they're printed on both sides. At one point he brags that they're even they're better than that ugly that ugly stuff that in the United States they call money. So. In so in this town in New Mexico, they have an alternate form of currency. They don't use the U.S. dollars; they use the TCs. Um, and it's just this really—it hmm. creates this again. It's this really fascinating kind of world that the story takes place in. Um, well, and Barbara, Barbara Stanwick is amazing <clears throat> in it. Um, and it's and it is because I. I I mean, this might be... I don't know if it's because it was a smaller movie or if it was a smaller movie because of this, but at any rate, it's a lot more... Like, the characters are allowed to be a lot more openly lustful than you would expect in a oh. movie from 1950. There's a lot more... It's sort of uh, open violence than you'd expect. It's a really, really great film. So, highly recommend The Furies. When talk
2: about it being kind of like a domestic drama set in a Western... Um, I also finally caught up with Bad Day at Black Rock, and that's oh. like a that's a it's like a mystery noir yeah. set in a western. That setting, and,
0: yeah, Bad Day at Black Rock is that I love that movie. The tension, the tension yeah. that's generated. I the only my only real complaint about that movie is that with the insane amount of tension it builds, the ending is kind of an anticlimax. Mm-hmm. But I can see but, that. Yeah. But it is so good at just. Spencer Tracy's in this town, and you ugh. don't know why. And the drama just builds and builds and builds and builds, and then and then him
2: wh- and Ernest Borgnine and yeah. Walter Brennan. It's just oh, Lee, is Lee Marvin in that one too? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Lee Marvin. Just an incredible film. It really is, and I love movies where it's like you know one man against the town, or you know one man against something that we don't know why everybody's conspiring against him and. You're right, like it, it, it the build up isn't quite like you know shocking enough or anything, but it's still the tension throughout is amazing and it it's kind of an interesting precursor at one point to something like Duel because you know he he's being chased off the road by this by Ernest Borgnine in a truck oh well, <laughs> that's a very small way of a precursor to duel <laughs> true. I'm you know can... reaching but yeah
0: you know <laughs> a, a couple of years ago I saw Bad Day at Black Rock and Paradise Lost the documentary about the West Memphis Free three. I saw those back to back and in my head I imagined a remake of Bad Day at Black Rock where it was someone coming down to West Memphis and letting loose a righteous fury <laughs> 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 that, like leveling the town uh, like a western because nice. of because of the three boys who get uh, sent to jail. Uh that'd be a fun movie. Sure. Yeah. I actually think now that I think about it that was actually there was a Daredevil comic uh based on the West Memphis 3 where Daredevil goes to this small southern town uh <laughs> and investigates these boys who who apparently have maybe been wrongfully accused and he just like beats up the sheriff or
2: something. <laughs>
0: I think we're ready to
2: move on, though, aren't we?
0: Yeah, I think so, too.
2: Yeah. Let's do this, Patrick. Could be our biggest director to date. His name is... Steven Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. Steven
0: Spielberg's
2: Spielberg's Spielberg's great.
0: Yes, I would agree there. Steven Spielberg's great. Yes, he sure is great. Steven Spielberg's great. Steven Spielberg's great. Steven Spielberg's great. Steven Spielberg
2: Rocks! Before we started recording, um, I watched a quick YouTube clip of a 2020 interview from 1982 featuring Steven Spielberg. And it's it it stuck with me and made me reali- realize why a lot of people like his film so much um he makes a lot of you know he 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 constructs a lot of his stories based on some avid interest or personal event that's happened to him and you know he's made pictures about the inner boy that you know has had a fear or you Know an adventure of some kind, and he just taps into the imagination unlike any other director of his time. And you know, a few years ago, I had the immense pleasure of getting to see both E.T. and Close Encounters at a drive in with Colin. Um, and obviously, uh-huh. having grown up with Spielberg and drive ins, I knew I was in for. Uh, a nostalgic treat, <laughs> but i hadn 't seen either film in a very long time actually until we uh, had that experience um, and it gave me a deeper appreciation for going to the movies because you know as most people know nowadays it 's all about streaming at home and um, you know downloading and just watching things conveniently and uh, seeing those at a drive in you know did a whole lot in terms of made me remember why I fell in love with movies in the first place um and so transitioning over to close encounters um, it just keeps getting better for me the more I watch it and it's there's there's moments that stood out in ways that they didn't when I was younger, um including. You know, the mashed potato dinner scene, where this time I focused on the son's reaction to his father. Um, And I found that to be incredibly well executed and and sad um, in ways that Spielberg doesn't need, you know, the John Williams score to accompany it. Uh, And I think that's the only major criticism I have of Spielberg's films later in his career that he relies too much on a score to get an emotion out of his audience. Um and you know, a film like Close Encounters doesn't rely on that. I mean, obviously the the score that you know mainly focus on is the 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 song that we get to hear uh throughout thanks to the aliens. And I I love that so much and it's It's a film about the unknown, about our reaction to the unknown, and I don't know, like, it it just has everything going for it. It's an incredibly inventive, inventive and seamless and fresh film that every time I watch it, I'm like, this is classic storytelling, this is, um, you know, science fiction, but done realistically in a way that's relatable. Um... And I just, I love everything about it, and I can't say how much more I agree with Patrick now because he's one of the first people to, you know, cite him as a really good uh, horror filmmaker in a way. Because he's so good at capturing terror and fear in a lot of different ways throughout his filmography. And I'm glad that you mentioned that a while ago, Patrick, because there's moments in this and obviously Jaws that still to this day are some of the best um, examples of tension and terror that I've ever seen on film.
0: Well, there's nothing there's like, uh, I don't know There's if there's much scarier than the scene in which Barry gets abducted, yeah, uh, which is enti- played entirely just with colored lights. Uh, and Perfect. <laughs> pretty Perfect much sequence. it is, it's, Utterly horrifying, and yeah. early on in the film, there's more subtle sort of just creepiness, such as all his toys turning on, and that really uh, creepy Very shot,
2: esque. Well, right,
0: yeah, certainly <laughs> uh, another great uh, movie that Spielberg directed. Yep, <laughs> um, and um, but and and sort of the more subtle creepiness of uh, the shot where the mo- or where Barry's mom is looking out the window down at him. And she's calling for him to come back, and he just sort of giggles and runs off frame. Um, something I noticed about those that, those early scenes that, that all happened during that night is um, you rarely see uh, uh, you rarely see night scenes shot um, like that. Uh, when you're a little kid. Um, you can live in you know you can live in in the safest place in America but there's something kind of spooky about your house at night and that's because it's all completely all the lights are off except for sort of the lights coming in through the street light
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know through the windows and stuff like that and there's a certain kind of darkness that usually when filmmakers they shoot like night scenes they rely sort of on the dark blue lighting so the audience well so it still implies like nighttime, but the audience can see everything clearly um, whereas the way Spielberg lights Close Encounters, I'm sure it must have been a giant pain. But the way that house is lit up, uh, it's all about just sort of harsh uh lights and shadows and stuff like that. It almost reminds me more of like the way Mario Bava shoots a uh, <laughs> shoots an, wow, an interior yeah. room night.
2: Never thought of that.
0: And it's it's really breathtaking. Uh, I want to ask real quick which version everybody watched and preferred. Cause I think this was actually my first time watching the theatrical version. I thought I had seen it, but I know the first time I saw it when I was like 12 or so, I saw the special edition. Cause I think that was all that was really on DVD. Um, and, uh, I know that, uh, and then I got the 30th anniversary or whatever on that has all three versions. The, the theatrical, the directors or the, special edition and then the director's cut. Um and I think I must have last time I watched it watched the director's cut because this time I was there's a bunch of scenes that like were some of my favorite moments that were missing. <laughs> and uh like the like the like the setup of uh his family where they're all arguing and he wants them all to go see Pinocchio and they want to go to goofy golf. Um, <laughs> that all is excised in the theatrical version. The a- theatrical version is yeah, just him playing with the right. trains. Um, which version did everybody watch?
2: I watched theatrical.
1: I watched the special edition. I, I are you sure that scene is not in in the original? I I am sure, sure. Yes, I think it, it was. It
0: opens. It opens with him. <clears throat> With the train It opens with him sort of playing with the trains uh, And then getting the call And then the kids, yeah, them crashing And then the kids yelling because they want to watch Ten Commandments on TV And then he gets the call and he leaves Um, And so, honestly I want to, and I will go back And watch uh, the special edition And the director's cut Again fairly soon Before our next Spielberg episode Because watching it this time it was not nearly as effective. Uh, I I usually cite Close Encounters as being my favorite Spielberg movie, but this time I don't think it established his family as well. Um, I think, yeah, I don't. There's something. There's something about the additional footage in that uh, that are in the director's cut and special editions that sort hmm. of flesh out the story and make it and make you feel more. I don't know. It it roots it roots them because something Spielberg is really great in it at doing is filming domestic scenes oh yeah like it, it, uh, whenever i think about my favorite spielberg things i don't think about the t-rex attacking the jeeps i don't think about you know the Kittner boy being attacking jaws i think about like the scene in et where all the kids are playing D and they're all just talking and yelling over each other and there's three things happening and there's elliot in the background there's the mom yeah. doing dishes in the foreground like that to me is what uh, a, like an American household looks like. It's similar to the, like the beginning of Jaws in the kitchen when Chief Brody's on the phone and then his son comes in and he's cut his hand and his mm-hmm. son and the mom are having a conversation while Chief Brody's on the phone. Like, he, and that those scenes are so great. They kind of, they feel kind of Altman inspired and in, in with the overlapping dialogue and and the very naturalistic perform the way the naturalistic way performances happen. Um, it's funny uh, that you said
2: that because I. I made a mental note of of bringing that up because you know I've been rewatching and watching Altman movies recently, and I thought the exact same thing. And I was like, "Damn it! I wish I would have brought that up sooner." But that's okay. I'm and glad I, you did.
0: And it. And it doesn't add anything to the story. It's not right. like finding out yeah. that his kids don't want to see Pinocchio and he does, or that you know, or I mean, it, it does. It establishes a little better the the disconnect that already exists between him and his wife, but. I, I understand why someone would think, you know. I understand why Spielberg would think that would have to go for the theatrical version or whatever. But I think it does such a good job of just rooting that the film in that emotion and that realism. So when the more fantastical things do happen, they have that baseline. Um, so the theatrical version, I'm honestly not a huge fan of. I mean, there's obviously all the great moments that still exist, but um, I want to go back and watch the other ones. So, Colin, I you think I this? might do the same.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's always it's all I've always ranked it very highly. Um, it's it's interesting to go back and look at it in terms of you know just the his his the rest of his career because there's very much that uh, that sort of childlike naivete and idealism throughout the whole thing, you know. Um, and and it's and you know he's coming off of Jaws, which was you know the biggest ordeal of his life, you know, biggest filmmaking ordeal of his life. Um, you know, and it's it's great that I, I love that Cold Encounters opens with the shot of a desert. Like we're not even going to go near the water this time, we're <laughs> go inland as possible, and we're not going to have a drop of water in this entire movie. Um, and uh, but I you know, it's, and it's the second time he's working with Richard Dreyfuss, and he's always thought of you know Richard Dreyfuss as being like his surrogate. You know, um, you know That's- he he's sort of Spielberg's you know. Uh, every man and uh you know mouthpiece or whatever you want to call it um and you know it's it's very much and, and and you know Richard Dreyfuss is pretty much like a child in this film, and he has that sort of childlike wonder that Spielberg you know had at the time um before his movies got a little more uh serious and a little more uh not cynical or jaded, but you know what I mean like more adult um and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, and, and it's it's an interesting thing to look at this film in terms of, um, you know, when it came out. It was, you know, the late 70s and, you know, we could just like, you know, it came out, I think, six months after Star Wars. And, uh, you know, him and George Lucas were sort of saying, you know, you know, sort of not thumbing their nose, but, you know, Taking taking movies back to a, a sort of innocence that they hadn't seen throughout the whole decade. Mm-hmm. You know, the seventies is a very obviously a very uh, uh, important decade in terms of the history of film, um, but it's also one of the most depressing. And <laughs> yeah. uh, growing, you know, if you were you know growing up watching movies in the seventies, I'm sure by the time you get to the late seventies, you're just like, oh, can we go ahead? Can we just have fun again? You know, <laughs> I'm just like, man, all this, you know talk about Nixon and the Watergate and, you know, uh you know, Vietnam and, you know, the weather underground and, you know, all these, you know, horrible things, you know, the country's just never been more cynical about its government or its leaders or anything. There's like no heroes to believe in anymore. And then, you know, Lucas comes out with Star Wars and still yep. comes out with close encounters and suddenly it's okay to like dream about looking up at the stars again and having this sort of uh, you know, wistful, uh, you know, um You know, sort of fantastical outlook and, you know, this is not a movie about, uh, you know, the government, um, you know, overreacting or to alien invasion or anything like that and, you know, it's very much like, okay, we know these aliens are coming. Let's, you know, they're not going to like get all the military and the guns out and everything. No, they're going to come up with this little musical way of communicating with them for when they return. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, not, I don't think Close Encounters is the first movie to behave like that, but, or, you know, to, to, to depict alien invasion like that, but it's definitely the, probably the most famous, um, or at least at the time. And, you know, I, obviously Spielberg would go on to make War of the Worlds 20 years later and it would be a completely different, uh, outlook, um, and so I, I I I think one of the reasons why Close Encounters holds up, for one thing, the special effects still look amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the character of Richard Dreyfus is the every man that everyone can sort of relate to, and you know he's very charming and likable and very childlike, um, and, uh, and and just the fact that you know you, it, it allows you to believe in the idea of worlds communicating with each other uh, in a nonviolent way in a non hostile way. And, um, you know, it's, it's a movie that makes it very easy to believe that this sort of thing could happen and what a wonderful world it would be if it, if it could in this way. And, and that's sort of the thing that I, I find interesting about it is it is very much Spielberg's, uh, naivete and innocence that makes this movie work as well as it does. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's like, it's a good, it's a good, uh, movie to, for us to talk about today and contrast to a movie that is not this way, which is Empire of the Sun. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I've always thought very highly and I forgot then, Jim, that you and I had seen this at the drive-in yeah. with E.T. I totally forgot about that. Um, and I don't remember, I guess it was the theatrical version that we saw that night. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, as far as which one do I prefer, uh, you know, I'd have to go back. I'd like to watch the director's cut again, which was, I mean, you know, the theatrical version was the version that came out because it's sort of, you know, Spielberg was forced to cut the movie at a, at a certain length, and then Columbia Pictures wanted to re-release the movie, but they wanted to, you know, put a campaign to it, you know, something to make, attract people to it, so they filmed some interiors of the spaceship, which i generally don't think is necessary and I think it kind of prolongs the, the last sequence of the film I agree uh, I, 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 I definitely prefer the theatrical version of the whole last half hour or 20 minutes or whatever it is of the film um, and then I guess the director's cut which came out in 1998 upon the film's uh, you know, 20th or, or whatever the anniversary um, maybe it was ninety seven. Uh, and I guess Spielberg took out the scenes on the spaceship, which he he was never in favor of. Uh, he just you know did it to appease Columbia Pictures. It was a compromise. Um, so you know I I I would like to go back and watch that version again. I'm not sure why I didn't. I guess I just got curious to watch the special edition because it's the one I haven't seen that many times. And you know, um, but I, I you know either either way, I mean it's still Close Encounters. Uh, I I I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. You know, when it comes to expanded editions and, you know, making, you know, longer cuts or, you know, stuff like that, um, oftentimes it's not always – it doesn't always make the film better. Um, Sometimes the theatrical cut is the better cut uh, just because it's, you know, it's tighter and it's, you know, um, there's not a lot of extraneous stuff in it. Um, And that might be the case with Close Encounters. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and watch the other two versions again um it's definitely the case with with uh with just about every peter jackson movie that's ever been expanded <laughs> the theatrical cut of every peter jackson movie is fine just the way it is
0: uh, and uh i i uh i rented i was super super excited to go back and watch et again and i didn't realize the dvd i rented was the special edition with all the additional <laughs> c- cgi
1: that's oh, the version. That's the version we saw at the drive-in. I remember yeah. being disappointed in that. Um, yeah, that's that. And I'm very happy that uh, the recent the the Blu-ray that came out last year of E.T. or, or two years ago uh, only has the theatrical version and not the 2002. Uh, a special edition. Ooh, so I gotta pick that
2: up then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean Spielberg has pretty much uh turned his back on that and, and you know understands that it's not very it's not the move that he should put out there. So
0: there there is there's a two couple things in Close Encounters that and again I really want to go revisit and see if it plays the same way to me um on the special edition and director's cuts. But there's something about Close Encounters that kind of bother me this time. One is that uh Um I I I would say it's only really one major thing, which is to me one of the great successes of of the movie is that it until the end, um you you don't know whether or not the aliens are friendly because they are creepy. (laughs) Like those opening shots are really scary where the the and they're making toys come to life and they're fucking with people and People, they're fucking with people's brains, and people are now seeing shapes and objects, and they're becoming obsessed. Like it's they infiltrate these people uh, like a like like almost a like a, like almost a mass hysteria sort of a thing, where
2: causing and, a grown man to play with his food.
0: Exactly, exactly, and to and to fucking go crazy and make his crying wife leave him with his, with her you know with their kids. Like it's. It, and, and, and they kidnap a little boy in one of the scariest scenes ever. Like they just no, – no motivation is ever given in the entire film why they kidnap the little boy. They just do. Um, and so to me, one of the great things about that is it both has sort of the wide-eyed optimism of, of a child being like, wow, aliens. Mm-hmm. Like think of all the possibilities of visitors from other worlds. But it also has the terror that you would feel as a child. Um, i right. and especially for me, I actually do have having grown up in the nineties uh when the x files got huge uh I grew up being particularly traumatized by images of grays <laughs> and I do actually have regular nightmares about alien abduction or aliens invading my house
2: don't ever see fire in the sky yeah well, no, i
0: I really want to see that because i love, <laughs> i love, i like i like being scared i well, you will be then
2: yeah, yeah.
0: i'm just, i'm just saying I'm just saying like to me. What makes the movie great is it's both wide-eyed and optimistic but also terrifying, Mm -hmm. Um, and it plays that ambiguity perfectly. But then at the end, it doesn't even try to hint that anything other than the most optimistic thing will happen. No one seems to be particularly frightened. No one seems to be particularly worried that what might happen. No one even seems to have an idea that the aliens may mean harm to them. They – it's as if they've already read the script and know that know that all that's really going to happen is a jam session, uh,
2: <laughs> and which I love.
0: No, and that's a great. I love that this movie, the big climax, like the big climax of a special effects blockbuster, is is aliens and humans playing music together. Like that's yep. that's wonderful and brilliant. But uh, the fact that it doesn't even play that in that sort of ambiguity at all even the mother of barry like she is not she doesn't even particularly seem to have any ill will towards them for taking her baby away like (laughs) she just goes you know what barry's not there and i'm just not ready like she doesn't see like she's like i understand they did what they have to do but it's really hard for me it's it's kind of crazy to me (laughs) that she that she isn't like, she and Roy don't have a fight where he is super excited to see them, and she's like, those fucking bastards took my child, Roy!
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: it's I always thought that was a little strange, and again, it might play differently in a different cut. Because uh, again, this was the first time I ever watched this movie and thought it was anything other than an unabashed masterpiece.
1: Well that's that's also I mean that's also Spielberg's writing at the time I mean he wasn't married didn't have kids at the time, and you know he's always said like he would if he made close encounters today Roy would not get on the ship yeah uh, that's mm-hmm. who, but that's who he was at the time, like he wouldn't get you know abandon his family to <coughs> hang out with some aliens, but at the time it was like, yeah, get me on the- get me on that spaceship and that that would be so cool so yeah I, I it's it's definitely that's definitely Spielberg's uh you know personality and 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 psyche that's you know at at the at the root of of that sort of behavior in melinda dylan's character i think
0: yeah that makes sense uh it definitely i mean Jim do you have anything else to add because we are talking about Spielberg wait did Spielberg write Empire of the
1: sun no no well he i mean no i mean he he's not credited you know with in the writing but you know he worked on the drafts with uh uh, Tom Stoppard, and it's you know it's based on J.G. Ballard's book. So,
0: mm-hmm. okay. So, if you want to talk about uh, someone who can embrace the darker ideas and stuff,
2: uh, Empire of the Sun. Do you have anything else to say about Close Encounters, Jim? Oh no, I I, I still think it's a masterpiece. I really do. I mean, it's it's great to have you know you were mentioning the overlapping dialogue and everything, but I I just like that there's a variety. Of different reactions and settings whether it be military, scientific domestic and just you know the different responses that they all have but you're right it's interesting to see like everybody's pretty you know kind of hopeful and and sunny at the end without thinking you know does you know obviously if he leaves it ambiguous we don't know what happens to them when they leave you know we don't know if they get probed or what (laughs) which is kind of cool I, I I think that you know it's again it's one of those it, up to the viewer interpretation of
0: it. Mean, I, mean, I mean, yeah, he definitely didn't make them cute. That first right. alien, the first spindly alien that comes out, is one of the creepiest looking creatures I've ever seen in any movie. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but it's great, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on our next film.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, Empire of the Sun came out uh, in 1987. Um and was sort of, uh, uh, this was Spielberg uh, at at this point had sort of uh, been a very established, you know, not only as a director of popular films, but as a producer of popular films, as a producer of television, I believe amazing stories was out by 87. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So like, um, and you know, his films had sort of, if, if you look at, The route from Jaws to Close Encounters to uh, something like uh, you know to like Raiders and E.T. He had definitely gone, um, and I and I think Raiders and E.T. are absolute masterpieces, but they're a lot more kind of populist, uh, more predictable kind of entertainment. I would say um, as far as just living in kind of established genres um and so Empire of the Sun is not that Empire of the Sun is a really odd movie uh do, do, I was not a I, I mean I was born in 87 so I don't think I was alive when this movie came out what was this a big hit what, no, was, the rea- no. what was the reaction to this when it came out
1: it was um, it, it had kind of a mixed reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are definitely a lot of support, supporters of the film. It did win some awards. Um, it got nominated for a few Oscars, but not best picture, not best director, uh, not you know best actor. Um, uh, you know, and it you know won a lot of critical awards, but overall, it, were, it was just kind of you know audiences didn't flock to it and um you know it's i i think warner I, I think it may have just maybe broke even a little bit at the box office but definitely was not one of spielberg's biggest hits at all so cuz it's
0: a very challenging movie it starts off with a main character who's a dick first and foremost <laughs> yeah uh christian bale in this film at the beginning um is just a very entitled wealthy asshole um and then He's put through the ringer uh in so many ways um, but what's interesting about the movie is it is about white people sort of in this other nation in as you know it being sort of caught in the middle of a conflict that um for, until later like they never even mention you don't find out what point in the movie Pearl Harbor even happens um you know it's mostly them being the The implication is them being caught up in a conflict that's nothing to do with them it doesn't but it doesn't shy away from the fact that these are like rich white people who you know who are entitled and who and and who might be jerks and and assholes and maybe not deserve all your sympathy there's it it doesn't um like it it doesn't let them completely off the hook just because they go th- get put through the ringer and I find that really interesting there i i think my favorite shot uh of the movie and probably what i would say is like it to me it's like the shot that sort of defines how the movie operates is there is when uh when christian bale and his parents are being driven to the party uh and they're being driven through shanghai for the first time and you see it, the and you see christian bale looking out the window you see things from his perspective and they're all very it's all a very familiar kind of shot which is it's the well captured well framed vignettes of a market bazaar and the fireworks and all these kinds of cool, exciting things. Um, and it looks like the way it's shot, it looks like an Indiana Jones movie where it's just, it feels like a back lot. It doesn't feel like a location. Um, and it feels, you know, and it, it feels more fun and adventure. And then uh, a man with, you know, carrying dead chicken carcasses slams into the window and you, there's that blood stain on the window. And mm-hmm. then Christian Bale sees an orphan, uh, begging and then getting beaten by a cop, and then it switches to his father 's perspective, and the camera pulls back and you see just the massive amount of poor uh, poor and slums and mm-hmm. and chaos going on uh and it suddenly it 's less fun and it 's more terrifying um and the way the movie operates, it kind of goes back and forth between uh the this these truly harrowing events as being exciting and being entertainment and being terrifying and having a human toll, and and it's not that Spielberg's trying to have his cake and eat it too. I, the way I feel about this movie is like it it is about a boy who is in denial, um, and it's a boy who, when he's at his when he's at his lowest points, um, he sort of retreats into his fantasies of being a pilot. He retreats into yeah. his fantasies of being a con man, along with John Malkovich's amazing character um, of you know being in part of that gang and and again once you see the prison camp uh first shot and introduced it's him running through the prison camp and everyone's doing their own little things and there's all these little vignettes and it's cute and it's really funny and it's uh it's kind of an enchanting version of it and then later on when things get much more bleak uh it's not nearly as fun and it's and it's sort of about Christian Bale going back and forth between sort of realizing what's happening to him and Retreating from that emotionally.
2: Yeah, it's definitely about <clears throat> um, retreating emotionally, and to the point of like uh, you mentioned him having this penchant for you know uh, aircraft, and <laughs> you know that's that's kind of something you can find throughout a lot of Spielberg's movies. Um, even his uh, Amazing Stories episode, The Mission. You know, it's again, it's about uh, fighter pilots. Um, fighter pilots that is <laughs> and I really do like this movie a lot um, the weird thing is I remember seeing really like I, I, I rented this and Hope and Glory pretty much back to
1: back when I was younger what's you know, Hope they, and Glory? They came, out, they came out at the same time it yeah. was yeah. Uh, John Borman's uh, semi-autobiographical movie about him growing up as a boy during World War II in mm-hmm. England. And, uh, but it's more of a comedy. I mean, yes, It's more of a family comedy. It's a great movie. It's one of those movies I wish would uh, you know, would still get attention today, but it's it's been kind of forgotten about.
2: And I think even when I was younger, I was surprised, obviously being a huge Spielberg fan, that I liked Hope and Glory just a little bit more. And that's probably just because it's a little bit lighter on its feet
1: and it's more accessible.
2: Yeah, it's more accessible. It's it it, it it's more about the child's perspective, um, you know, not necessarily like the tragedy of war. And here, it's you know, it's a it's a movie that's kind of at war with itself. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I I just I'm surprised that I don't have that kind of emotional catharsis. Um than I do through a, 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 a lot of Spielberg's movies and especially his war movies um but there's moments that I just go, God, it's one of some of the best moments of Spielberg's career and I love the uh moment where the the couple is having sex and he's spying in on them and within seconds like a bomb goes off and you know it's this the sounds of you know, lovemaking is replaced by the sounds of war, Um, and, you know, I've actually, I remember reading the book and uh, becoming a fan of Ballard's writing style, and surprisingly, um, I would say Spielberg was quite faithful um, in terms of tone, in terms of how it is like a, you know, bumper car experience of going between, um, you know, the, the death of innocence and trying to hold on to that um and just you know dreams of turning into a nightmare childhood becoming instant adulthood because of the surroundings he's faced with um i think christian bale's awesome in this movie and one of the best performances um by a child ever and i think that carries me throughout and it's not you know um He's, you know, Spielberg is not using the character as a vessel or a cipher for feelings. He's, he's really interested in in the the child's response to what's going on around him, and you know, it, there's not a lot of consistency in that because of what he's going through. Um, I think the movie's pacing's a little off, uh, and overall, it's not one of my desert island Spielberg choices because. Again, there's so much to admire about it There's so many moments that stand out for me uh, I like that you know. There's moments of restraint And simple storytelling uh, But at the same time I'm not as emotionally involved With what's going on And that surprises me to this day I think uh, I, There's something missing That I can't quite put my finger on And it's probably just The overall effect of watching it
1: um, I to me this is one of my desert island Spielberg films. I thought so. That's, That's why I want you on. <laughs> yeah, this one is. This one had a huge effect on me when I saw it uh, sure. back in 1987. I mean, I was a Spielberg fan at the time, um, and there was something about this film that just uh, struck me as being just a cut above everything else he had ever done um, at the time. Uh, it's i uh, i I think probably one of the things that struck me about it is um, is that you're right it is it is kind of hard to be get emotionally attached to the character in this film and yet there's there's scenes in it in the movie that are that do uh move me probably become more probably as much to do as Spielberg's technique, but as I get older. When I watch the movie, I'm I'm more struck about um, what strikes me about it is um, the way that this kid's uh, you know inner his his thought process and his um, you know uh, his 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 psyche is very much are is is such an uh, is such a strange through line for a viewer. It doesn't surprise me when people say I like it but I'm just not moved by it because this kid is 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 like you said Patrick he's he's a jerk. Uh yeah. um, but the thing is his mind is constantly working. It's constantly thinking of things that are just, you know, that adults have sort of stopped thinking about, you know, things about, you know, where does, you know, where is God and you know and what is, you know, if if I can fly is is that is that you know, getting as close to heaven and godliness as I'll ever get in this lifetime. Things like that that sort of come into conversation, and adults just go, Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't keep up with you. You know? Um, and to see this kid just sort of get taken down several pegs with every, you know, uh, conflict and every character that he meets, uh, I think is a fascinating journey um just just to kind of and, and it doesn't happen gradually obviously this is a two and a half hour movie so yeah it's kind of slow um it's it's very methodical in in the way it depicts this kid and his uh just sort of losing it, it, especially in the third act losing grips his grip on reality mm-hmm. and losing his 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 childhood and his sense of wonder um and it's uh, if and 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 George, John Williams score is really the soundtrack to this kid's m- mind you know um you you know when you watch the scene in which uh the uh the prison camp is being invaded by the planes and he and he sees these planes and he's just shouting at them um it's it's an amazing scene but it's it's it is kind of hard to like get to sort of get the same feel the same kind of emotional catharsis as this kid does when when he sees the american plane flying by and waving at him uh it's to the kid it's it's everything it's it's the connection to his childhood it's the connection to his passion it's the connection to his dream that he's kind of been forgetting about because he spends every day just surviving and learning the ins and outs of surviving the prison camp, which is like a you know, which to a kid, you know, kids are very uh, you know versatile and very uh, you know um, you know they, they they you know can can adjust to, to situations that they're in. And some people criticize the movie for the prison camp being being made to look a little bit too fun. Um, but that's how it is to a kid. You know, yeah. that's how it was to kids. They they sort of adapted to the situation and it is very sort of, you know, uh, there's a lot of cat and mouse going on in there and a lot of, you know, kids playing marbles and, and just adapting to this lifestyle and still being kids. Um, yeah, that's very but, apparent in hope and glory. The kid yeah. is just like, Oh, yeah, it's just another playground. <laughs> right, that's that's kind of what war can be. I mean, and, and you know, you go to any playground uh, in any suburban you know landscape, and you'll hear kids playing war games all the time. And this was this kid was in the real thing, um, and you know, this is based on J.G. Ballard's book, and it's auto. It's he, he he wrote it as a novel. It's not an autobiography, but it's it's very much based on his experiences. And uh, like Jim said, this is a very faithful film, um, and I just for some, I think when I when I saw it in 1987, you know, I went back and saw it over and over and over again for one re, well, for one thing this was back in the day when Spielberg uh resisted as long as he could in putting his movies out on video um mm-hmm. You know, you had to wait at least a year and a half or two years for a Spielberg movie to come out on video. He liked to re-release them in theaters because that's the way he wanted them to be seen. Rightfully so. So I thought, well, I'm going to go see Empire of the Sun as many times as possible because I'm not going to see it again for another year and a half, and I think the movie is fantastic. Um, turns out that wasn't the case. The movie didn't do very well, and it came out in video six months later. But whatever. <laughs> um, but I think just I, I I guess I'm always taken by I, I, I'm taken by movies about childhood that are very much that that sort of take uh you know i I guess because i grew up in such a you know sort of boring no frills suburb that to see movies where kids are you know having are at the center of the movie and having adventures like an et or the goonies or something like that it's i'm very you know i was very much taken by that and empire of the sun was just this sort of weird kind of alternate take on that idea you know that it's it's a movie about survival and it's a real life survival that somebody actually went through as a kid and uh, i was very taken by that but i was also you know very much a film school sort of geek at the time and i was in high school but i definitely knew my stuff by then uh in terms of like you know technique and filmmaking and all that stuff um, and I was just sort of taken by by Spielberg's um, you know style and the way he shot, and uh, you know this is also coming off of the color Purple, which is his first sort of venture into an adult themed um, you know way of telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I watched that was the movie I watched this week, uh, and, and because I hadn't seen it in probably like twenty years, and that I mean you want to talk about an odd movie experience to watch now. Color Purple is very strange because it's, it's it's you know, it's this movie, I don't know if you guys have seen it in a while.
2: I haven't. I, it's one I wish I could have gotten to, and I might still try
1: for the it, next it's, week. Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 it's it's a movie that I, I want to believe in, and I want to like, um, and there's a lot to like about it. There's a lot of movie, really moving scenes in it, and it's beautifully shot, and Whoopi Goldberg is amazing in it. Um, but, like, it's, he almost made it a comedy. I mean, it, it's, hmm. you know, he, he just was, I, I think he was way out of his element with the film or with the material. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, you, you kind of look at it and it's like, well, it doesn't exactly it, 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 you know, maybe at the time it was a great movie for African-Americans, but not today, um, especially since there's not a single sympathetic male character in the entire film, <laughs> Uh, you know but it, but i I bring it up because that is also another two and a half hour epic about survival right and i 'm curious i mean I'm, I'm i'm wondering what drew Spielberg to these you know these kinds of stories about these people uh you know who you know he never would have known as as a kid uh or you know growing up, but what drew him to these stories, these long Sagas about survival at this point in his career um but Empire of the Sun is a movie i I, I love going back to I like that it's challenging I like that you know it, it it's 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 a movie not made for a specific audience it's not made to be crowd pleasing it's the one it's, you know it's a, it's one of the few films in his in his uh, catalog that is just sort of an anomaly you know yeah. there's a lot of people who love it for a lot of different reasons and then there's a lot of people who Like you, Jim, like it or Admire it more than you feel connected To it, and that's totally understandable
0: What's interesting to me is I was way more emotionally invested In Empire of the Sun Than, like, Close Encounters Like, all of the things I think that make Close Encounters An amazing movie are less About emotional investment and more Just about the skill of The way he sets up the world and the way He sets up the tone and the way Certain sequences are shot and Just you know the way the story sort of unfolds, but it's not necessarily because I can relate to obsessing over something so much that I destroy my life. Like it's, and it's not as if he give yourself time, Patrick. Oh, certainly. And I mean, Paul Schrader wrote the original script for Close Encounters, and you can, and I can imagine a version of Close Encounters that's a lot more hardcore. uh, No pun pun intended. As uh, as far as as far as the the lengths that Roy goes to, um, other than like ruining his living room, (laughs) you know, like, um, but but like to me that's that's that the like the point of that like I mean obviously Jaws is a masterpiece but it's not because it's the most emotionally riveting movie in the world it's just Mm -hmm. because it's and to me Empire of the Sun because it's so complicated I found it very easy to invest in because it wasn't just simplistic it wasn't um, it was very complex I think the reason there's not great catharsis when the pilots come and they start bombing. You know the camp is because that isn't a great catharsis. Just the exact moment before the Americans come uh, is when he, Christian Bale was cheering on the Kamikaze pilots. Christian, like <laughs> yeah. I, it was, it was a little bit jarring at first because I'm like, wait a second, who does this guy have allegiances to? Because <laughs> he, because he's cheering the com and singing for the Kamikaze pilots, and then immediately the Kamikaze pilots start getting taken out, and then he starts cheering for those people. Um, and it's more that he just has, you know, he just has allegiances to pilots. But again, I think that's such an intense moment for him that he just retreats into because at that point, like you know, and it's a line of dialogue. You're no longer twelve. Um, at that point, he's no longer the kid he was at the beginning of the movie. He's gone through a lot, and he's been through a lot, and he's seen enough death and horror that he's matured. And I think that moment is just a that's all about denial and all about freaking out about what it means for his world to be shattered yet again um, and retreating into sort of yay awesome airplanes mode, um, which is why when the doctor's shaking him uh, he and saying don't think so much don't think so much that he just sort of snaps and it all comes flooding into him that he doesn't remember what his parents look like which is one of the most heartbreaking moments of that movie um, like so to me Empire of the Sun's really engrossing emotionally and it's a really it's a story I follow entirely through this character um I think man, its its main problems as far as pacing and stuff goes is yeah. that um if your movie is a very long film there should be a clear like the audience should know where they are in it at all times <laughs> like I, I I say should there's obviously no rules you can if a movie works it works whether or not it quote unquote follows this quote unquote rule but like
2: it's following the source material I
0: think but No but sure. what I'm but what I'm saying is to the average audience member who has not read the book it's not clear where the ending of this movie is because yeah. it's just sort of it's it's just sort of uh suffering and then there's a the change of scenery and then there's different kinds of suffering and there's, it's not like it's not like Okay, like Jaws, very clear ending. Well, how's this movie going to end? It's going to end when either the shark kills these men or the men kill the shark. Close Encounters, how's that going to end? Well, it's going to end when Roy finally figures out – gets to the bottom of what the shape is and what these what these ships are and what they want. Uh, like these kinds of films, you know where they're going just by you – know, just because you know the story they're telling. Whereas this, like once – I thought the end of the movie was going to be when – The prison camp was liberated. Mm -hmm. I thought at that point, oh, well, his his parents died. Like, that's what I thought this narrative of this film would be. And I even think the fact that his parents didn't die isn't even a cop-out as far as, like, a lot of people will complain about, like, the ending of War of the Worlds where the son being alive at the end is kind of a cop-out. But... To me, that's one of the most heartbreaking things about the ending of Empire of the Sun is his parents are still alive, but he doesn't recognize them at first, and they don't recognize him. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's a fucking long road ahead of them as far as being a complete family again. Yeah, and like, dealing with PTSD and all that. And, too. and I mean, that's why that last shot is because the f- opening shot of the movie is the coffins floating in the in the river, um, yeah. and then and then that boat slam, like slamming into the coffin, which again is a really it's a pretty uh, powerfully cynical image um, uh, for to open a Spielberg movie. Um, and then the last shot is his suitcase with all of his memories and everything floating in the river. And it's just sort of the life he had is now completely gone and the life ahead is completely unknown. And to me, it's one of the few instances in which Spielberg uh, is really successful with ambiguity. Um, and that to me is why I found... Empire of the Sun more engrossing than a lot of his films, at least emotionally. Even if, even if I do think it's a little long in the tooth, um, and it it could have been edited, you know, it could have been edited down a little bit. I, and I also really want to say, real quick, John Malkovich is fucking amazing. Every moment with John Malkovich in this movie is yeah. the greatest thing. Um. It's great to see
1: him, <laughs> him and Joey Pants together, and and uh, and uh, Ben Stiller. Yeah, of his films, I almost forget that he's in it, but he's in right. It, uh, just, Minor, a minor minor di- character, but yeah,
0: it was a little distracting at first because it feels like he's yeah. doing a character from the Ben Stiller show. <laughs> but, but but once once you sort of settle in, it's he he's not a bad actor. It's just baggage. Um, yeah, and
1: I and I really I really find the the relationship between Jim and Basie uh, is is definitely one of the great you know one of, one of the very interesting things about it because mm-hmm. he. You know Jim Graham gives so much trust to Basie, and you know I love that. You know the first the first scene with Malkovich, you never see his eyes. You know Spielberg makes a point of never showing you Basie's eyes at all. Um, And you know he's he's got him in sunglasses, and his you know the camera angles you know adjusted so he can't really see him. And you you know he he makes that promise you know the to Jim like yeah I'm going to tell you when we're getting out of here because you know. You know, promise me, basically, because you're my friend, or I'm your friend, and you know, you just you just know that the, he's this kid is just being used for everything. You know, planning mines or planning, you know, looking for mines, um, you know, getting, you know, stealing soap from the 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 emperor, whatever he is, um, and just you know, it, it it it's just one of the most heartbreaking things to watch this kid go through is just his disillusionment with people in general, you know. Yeah. Uh, like the only the only person he can count on to be his friend towards the end of the movie is a kid who doesn't even speak his language, you know. Uh, they just have this love they just know they both have this love of airplanes and flying. But you know, when, when he you know John Malkovich comes back and, and you know, towards the end of the film, you know, Jim Graham wants nothing to do with him um yeah. doesn't trust a thing he says anymore and it's just it's one of those you know one of those uh pains of growing up that you know i guess a lot of people go through it just you know not learning how not to trust so easily it's it's
0: it's it's really that is and the It actually solves a a problem that this movie could have had, which is him being a precocious kid, which can be a very annoying trope, the the precocious kid who's very smart and whatever. But like because he's so naive and because you know that he's putting his trust in all the wrong people, um, it really makes him feel less of like a screenwriter's invention and more of a fallible human being. And I love that this whole movie, he pledges his allegiances to whoever – he really just wants to belong. I mean, especially once he gets separated from his parents, but even before, I mean, it opens with him singing, I believe in Chinese.
1: Um, he, well, he, 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 he pledges allegiance to everybody, but the British, you know, right, it's like, he never like, been there. You know, like, his like his dad says, like, you know, well, we're our, our side's going to win. Come on. We're British. He's the kid's just like, well, I've never been there, but the Japanese yeah. have pilots and, yeah. you know, and he's, and he's, Obviously fascinated by Americans, Um, you know the Americans. That
0: that great moment—you're an American now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, you're an American now, Jim. Yeah, and he does that American. He does that great American. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Um, Yeah. yeah, So yeah, it's allegiance to everybody but his own kind,
0: (laughs) and it's and it's and it's because he's so desperate for that. And I mean the the parts of the movie, and I love that. I love. The, the character of the of the boy who is basically his Japanese counterpart and that boy's story I like this is a very emotional movie and I I've found it very engrossing but the the only part I actually cried at was when his plane he was going to kamikaze and his plane wouldn't take off like yeah. that is heart wrenching moment because you know that's all that boy wanted and honestly yeah. that's probably all that boy had left to live for at that point. Yeah. With the war being so close to at the end, and um, and then especially once you find out, you know, that the bombs were dropped, uh, and so his first reaction to seeing uh Jim is to try to you know attack him with the sword, but quickly they were you know recognize each other and stuff. And then, of course, even that Spielberg doesn't let you have that reunion too long, like this is Spielberg in a very kind of darker uh mode, um, but it. But it maintains all the good things about Spielberg in a lighter mode. It maintains the, his love of child, you know, children and their imaginations. It maintains um, his mastery of tone. I mean one of the things that I found really breathtaking going back and watching Jaws and Indiana Jones again um, that their imitators never get is that uh, Spielberg is the master of creating a tone in which the stakes are very high – but it's not scary, but it's more fun than anything. So like there's tons of movies that try to be Indiana Jones, but either they're too light, like all the mummy movies, Ugh. there's, there's, I mean, I like the mummy movies. I, I think know Brandon most people. Frazier, yeah, I mean, yeah. I like the first Mummy. I should say, I like the first mummy movie and I like Scorpion King, but, um, <laughs> but like, but like those movies, there's no moment where you fear for Brendan Fraser's safety, the way you fear for Indiana Jones safety when he's climbing under that truck, you know, like there's no moment where, uh, and, and and indiana jones is fluid and well because he's he's both fallible he fucks up he uh he blows up that truck that he thinks marion's in he makes mistakes but mm-hmm. also he's a superhuman person who does crazy stuff and is super capable and brilliant and spielberg walks that tone like he spielberg is the master of tone he can you know uh and he you and he can walk
2: away and, and just- he I I agree. I I think the interesting thing too to wrap up *Empire of the Sun* is also like, you know, I I think of Spielberg's camera work as being you know, uh, very liberated and speedy and yet graceful. But this time it's, I love his tracking shots in *Empire of the Sun* because they're more about observation. They're they're more about taking on the uh, perspective of of Jim looking on into the world and. You know, the camera gets one last good look at everything before it disappears, and, you know, it captures just what it must be like to be in that surrounding. And there's just something about every time I watch a Spielberg movie and become aware of how elegant his, you know, either tracking shots or just the way he shoots an action sequence or, you know, even being Buster Keaton-esque in moments of uh, Raiders, I... Nobody films an action sequence like Spielberg.
0: I have have to say, I prefer early Spielberg when his camera was so mostly stationary. That was another thing that really surprised me about Jaws is how stationary the camera is for a lot of it. And same with Close Encounters. Same with a lot of ET and Duel. I I haven't seen. I haven't. I've yet to see Duel, but um, but uh, I I but I yeah I he's it's not as if his films look bad when he starts Never. to be more liberated, as you say, like with Raiders and with, you know, uh, Empire and later, you know, with like Jurassic park, especially, um, there's a lot more, uh, full fluid kind of movement with the camera, but I do prefer sort of the aesthetic of the earlier ones.
2: Absolutely. Let's touch on a couple more. Uh, it's hard to pick one. <laughs>
1: uh, What's the, what's the thing about about again going back to um, the color purple is he? I, I think he has more invested in his technique than he does in the story with that film. Hmm. I mean, talk about a movie that is just rife with all kinds of um, you know fancy dissolves and fancy cuts, you know, to link the scenes together. You know, uh, a lot of you know, um, you know, the sound of one. Thing happening leads into the sound of another thing happening into the next scene. Um, you know he's very into that in the color purple. He almost huh. goes overboard. Um, self awareness in terms, yeah, of, a little yeah. bit of self awareness. And, mm-hmm. uh, and with Empire of the Sun, he definitely pulls back on that, uh, yes, but in uh, several notches. And just you know, he he he's he's not as fanciful with the camera. Um, with as he as he as he was in, in as he has been in other films, and it's important I think also to point out you know the uh the contributions of uh uh John Williams in all of his in all, all of his films uh the only one he didn't compose music for was the color purple. um I think John Williams, I mean contri- you know contribution to Empire of the sun is is so valuable because it is it is a soundtrack, like I said, to Jim's state of mind. Um, you know, and in and I think, uh, I, I, Empire of the Sun has always been one of my favorite scores of of his because it doesn't rely on you know uh, a theme or a melody to get stuck in your head throughout the whole thing, um, like you know something like you know E.T. or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Obviously, those are very classic, anthemic, you know, uh, music pieces that will stay in your head forever. And rightfully so, they're great, and they work well for those movies. But I love that Empire of the Sun doesn't really have that. Um, you know, it, it's it's uh, uh, it, it's just it's more um, it's more just kind of in the background than than usual.
2: And I like his score for Catch Me If You Can. Almost. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's a great one
2: because it's not very Williams esque.
0: Right. Right. Well my 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 general distaste with film scores has been well documented on this podcast so I will especially when they're overbearing. And, well yeah and I will go ahead and say that I mean obviously uh close encounters, jaws, uh indiana jones, um you know even jurassic park those are all films that really benefit from their scores. Um but I will say for films that are a little more complex and not a and not sort of just and simple kind of thrill rides or entertainment or even in the case of close encounters wide-eyed like really simple wide-eyed optimism uh at the end there which what makes the score and the music so compelling um it it can be a little overbearing so i'm not a huge fan of empire's music i'm not a huge fan of honestly a lot of what john williams in my mind kind of stands for as far as and to be fair, he's not the director of the film, so it's Spielberg's choice to lean on, as Jim said, lean on the score so much. But uh, I that's mean, one not- of his
2: most like cited criticisms: is that he just relies on it and you know amps it up at. Moments I, to get a rise out of the I, audience. I, I think
1: that's really- fair. I mean, I, I will say that that's that's fair. I mean, I, especially in, you know in his later films, you know, he it's he, he does rely on it a little too much when he doesn't need to. Um, but I think uh, you know a movie like Empire of the Sun or even even um, uh, oh what was I going to say? I was going to mention something about Always. Um, what was the last time you guys watched? Oh it? God, I haven't watched that I've in a long time seen, either. Never never seen Always. It's, you should see it. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it is Spielberg, uh, at his sweetest, I should say. Um, but not, 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 not necessarily, I don't mean that in a bad way, (laughs) you know? Um, but it's very, an old fashioned romantic movie, uh, inspired by an old fashioned romantic movie or, or based, you know, it's a remake. Um, Joe, the guy named Joe is is the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it even even in that movie, I think is is sort of when John Williams' score is like it's it's okay to be overbearing because it's the tone of the movie is so old fashioned and so like unapologetically um, romantic, and yet there is a, a sort of darkness to it also. It's, it's a, I, I need that's one of those I've been meaning to go back and watch again. It's not one of his most famous films, um, but. Uh, it's 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 a movie that I think probably wouldn't probably wouldn't work. I don't know if it would work today um, because you you definitely can't be you know a jaded a totally jaded cynic uh, and enjoy it. <laughs> so uh,
2: yeah, be I would not, to relive that one. Yeah. Yeah. I would like so. I would like
0: to talk about Jurassic Park real quick. Yeah, yeah. I went back and rewatched this. I was shocked. Um, I mean. <laughs> I, I, I was I was shocked uh, because I accidentally rented the porno version. No, um, I I so to be to be absolutely one hundred percent fair to Jurassic Park, um, a I saw that movie a million times as a kid. That was one. That was just one of those movies that everyone I everyone I knew had it on videotape, and we always watched it a lot. So there is. I think I really do think you can wear out movies, um, and so. That movie is never ever going to be as thrilling to me as it was when I was a child, um, just because it's so familiar that it can almost feel tedious watching it. But um, so that with that disclaimer, uh, rewatching it, I was shocked at how much of Jurassic Park focuses on stuff that isn't how sweet special effects are, <laughs> and and the dinosaurs are.
1: No, I mean, you almost—you watch it today. It's almost, uh, you know. I mean, it, you know, it—it it, it came out uh, in theaters last year again in the new revamped 3D version, <laughs> and uh, I went to see it in 3D. And thought it was fantastic. I mean, I mean, it's the best. It's the best retrofitting 3D I've ever seen. Uh, for, you know, for an old movie, converting it to 3D that has not been a very successful formula. But for Jurassic Park, it worked, and it was great to see it on the big screen again. But and and I know what you're saying, and I think it's it's you watch it today, and it's almost like it, because the film was such a uh, a game changer in terms of special effects. And when they're talking about, you know, when Jeff Goldblum is talking about, you know, you, you, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to pull, you know, follow through with this kind of technology? It, it, you know, bad things could happen. Um, <laughs> it's almost, it's almost like parallels the argument about having too many having special CGI
2: of, ugh, I know that.
1: Too, too much CGI and are we really you know careful what you you wish for with this technology because you know somebody could manipulate it in a way that is not going to be good <laughs> uh, you know so I, Park has that sort of connotation to it now mm-hmm. that's it. really
0: I didn't even think about that that's actually a really fascinating way to look at it mostly I just think for a movie that like so after I watched I watched the making of documentary on the DVD um, and pretty much 80 percent of everything they talk about in the making of this movie is about the special effects. Right. Like, And to me, that is – that's the reason this movie exists is because it's an exciting thrill ride it, that could showcase amazing breakthroughs in special effects. So that it spends as much time as it does with like Grant spe- – <laughs> like Grant okay so Grant's character arc is oh, I hate kids they're annoying they they smell babies smell and then and then he meets two kids who are sincerely annoying and then he goes oh you know what kids aren't so bad
2: <laughs> like
0: like it's it's a really like all of that stuff where Grant's learning to be a father or whatever that's all just garbage to me and all yeah. the the long stuff about again uh like the hand-wringing at this pretend science <laughs> like this is not the movie that you need to be making if you're if you want to make a stand against uh science, against gene gene splicing and therapy and stuff like that like that's not what this movie's about at all. Um,
1: so, I don't think Spiel- I don't think Spielberg himself would disagree with that at all. I, I mean, so all of
0: that stuff I, it just felt like the movie doesn't care about it. But still, you have that long speech that Hammond has about the flea circus and all of that, and it's just there's a lot of this movie that well, is not. What you come to see, and it's no, really but, boring.
1: But what he, but what he's doing with all that stuff is what he did with Jaws, which is you know don't give every don't give the audience everything right up front. Give them a little tease at the beginning, which he does, and then make them wait for it. You know, oh, that's, but that's, oh, that's, yeah, that's I, total I, showmanship. And and granted, the stuff in Jaws that is doesn't involve the shark is way more interesting than the stuff in Jurassic Park oh, that doesn't hundred, involve the shark. Mm-hmm. But, but, I, I see what you're saying,
0: but, but yeah, I but he's still I definitely uh, don't think he had he was uh, successful as well you know. I
1: mean yeah no but I mean I think there are there are probably you know just sort of you know Joe average film goers you know who aren't overly critical like we are you know who probably do enjoy some of that innocuous stuff you know and I think he's kind of maybe just playing to that a little bit um, but you know it's it but man when those dinosaurs show up it, it's 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 a relief because you know you don't have to we don't have to deal with the other humans anymore
0: yeah. It's, it's it's 21 years this movie has been out um and it is yeah 21 years so and that is how long it took me to watch this movie and to see it as CGI as opposed to actually that that's how good yeah. and well achieved the CGI is that is it wasn't only until this last time I watched it that I would look at shots and go oh yeah that's kind of I see how that yeah it's, it's not groundbreaking
2: that in that regard yeah, yeah
0: but that it took so long for it to look dated to me and the <laughs> the t-rex attack on the jeep uh does not look dated at all because Uh -uh. how much of it was mechanical and stuff and and again that 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 attack has a real genuine sense of danger that you don't necessarily associate with the crowd-pleasing spielberg of that era where the like that shot of the jeep being crushed into the mud and just the kid bleeding out of his head and like all that stuff is like way more intense than the rest of the film and it's really great um and of course jeff goldblum's amazing Mm -hmm. uh i love. I love I love the idea of a uh, a Lothario mathematician,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and it should also be noted that I mean Jurassic Park uh, in 1993 was the beginning of you know a major, like one of the biggest uh, you know and most important uh career comebacks in, in film history. I mean Spielberg was not on the upswing when he made you know beforehand. You know, he's coming off of movies like Always and Hook, which were disappointments. Um and, you know, it was they just weren't, you know, it was Spielberg was just kind of uh, you know, uh on autopilot with Hook as far as I'm concerned. I think it's his weakest film by far. Um, And always just didn't, you know, get a lot of attention for, you know, from the critics or audiences. And so, you know, he comes back in 1993, first with Jurassic Park, being like the all time moneymaker, you know, or at least, you know, the biggest movie of that year. And then six months later, Schindler's List Comes out and that's a
0: hell of a one-two punch. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I mean, he's
1: done that a couple of times. Any better than that? I mean, you win all the Oscars, you know, in the technical category for your for your dinosaur movie, and then all the other important categories for your you know prestigious uh, Holocaust film. I mean, you can't do better than that. But and I feel like. As he, later in his career, he started sort of chasing that again mm-hmm. you know, with these other sort of one-two punches. You know, I mean, he wouldn't direct another movie again until 1997 with, you know, a Jurassic Park sequel and a movie about a slave ship Amistad in the same year. So he's like trying to do that, having that 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 kind of success again. Um, you know, and then a few years later down the road, you got War of the Worlds and Munich coming out in the same year. Uh, six months apart, and then a few Didn't years ago, my, it was Minority war, Report and Catch Me If You Can, and then War. Oh yeah, minor, Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can in the Great. same year, and yeah. then uh, la- a couple of years ago, you had War Horse and The Adventures of Tintin coming out within three days of each other. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I and, and and I think he's. You know, I I don't think he's making these movies. Uh, you know, just to try and win awards and acclaim and all that. I I do think he's sincere about his interest in these projects. But it just kind of it feels a little funny to me sometimes. You know, when he's got two two uh, different kinds of films. One's for you know crowd pleaser, and then the other one's more you know award prestige. You know, has more awards prestige attached to it. And it's just kind of like you know, it's not nineteen ninety three anymore, dude. But um, you know that that the, I, I I still I'm still a fan and you know I'm I always will be I'm very oh, yeah. I've, I I've I've forgiven Spielberg for so many things that I shouldn't you know <laughs> forgive directors for just because I don't know man he he just has this way of of winning me over with some of his with even even lately with uh, and you know Eric Childress I guess will go over this stage in his career you know later. Um, you know, there's a lot of things to criticize Spielberg about over the last ten years. Um, you know, even you know with even not with without uh, the Crystal Skull, um, but there but there are things you know in all of his movies that I, I know I'm being manipulated in that classic Spielberg way. I know he's trying to push my buttons with the John Williams music and the cinematography and the editing and all that, and I I know I'm being manipulated and I'm okay with it usually. So. <laughs>
2: And I completely understand that, but I am i still can't get over how perfect Jaws is in every way. Like, the introduction of Quint is one of my favorite things ever. And then, of course, you know, his, his monologue. Actually, that whole moment where they're all together, you know, comparing Scars, the monologue, then singing. That is just perfection in every way. And I just... Every time I watch Jaws, I'm like, it, it, it just how like it's everything came together so effortlessly in this movie. Oh, no, it was
0: not effortless. Well, I
2: mean, I know that. <laughs> I know he that like he's, those documentaries, man. Yeah, he he struggled a lot with the with the shark. I know, <laughs> but it just plays that way. Yeah, like it's yeah,
0: you so perfectly. perfectly Signs like of panic
1: when you watch Jaws.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the the things that that fascinated me this last time I watched Jaws again was how unapologetically fake it is. Because it is so – there's a lot of it that's really naturalistic. Again, the the scene in the Brody's kitchen and just the sort of the way that the town is sort of existing and there's a parade going on as they're having an argument and other people are trying to get Chief's attention. And there's all these little fun things that are just like very down to earth. But when it comes to the shark – like, number one, it, the shark doesn't behave like a shark. Number two, like, you know, it, it, it the, even the way the shark moves and everything, like when they're, ha- when they're singing, show me the way to go home, and the shark begins ramming the boat, Ugh. like a, a shark couldn't actually do that because it wouldn't, because it just rams it like multiple times within five seconds. Whereas a real <laughs> shark would have to like bat, like swim around again yeah. and get momentum and hit it again. But like the movie doesn't, the movie just knows, like, Spielberg just does what he has to do to make a great scene and whether or not you know and 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 he's able to ground it in the characters so that when the shark has that crazy moment where it jumps onto the boat it isn't completely like it, the whole audience doesn't go what that's such bullshit <laughs> like <laughs> like because it there's it's so grounded in the characters um and again that's that mastery of tone he has um that it, but I was I it was funny cuz it parts of the way the shark behaves it feels more like a little kid with a shark toy like again when the shark's ramming the, the cage that, <laughs> that Hooper is in it's like boom 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 which is which Which like even just the basic laws of physics if you think about it for a second you're like wait what happened <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really great um, I, yeah Jaws is incredible
2: An incredible camaraderie and just inter- the interaction between all three of them It's fantastic. It's one of my just one of those movies I can watch all the time and never get sick of. And it's it's everything like you know you people lump it in with Halloween and Psycho for good reason. It's just like a beautiful orchestrated horror film. And I don't know, like it. I could definitely talk about really quickly. You know, when I was a kid, and I I'm told. I've told Colin this, and he, he kind of goes, What? So, uh, I'm expecting that again. But I wasn't crazy about E.T. when I was a kid. What? Oh, sorry. Thanks. <laughs> right on cue. Um, yeah, I was... I think it's because it tapped into something. And I, I kind of brought this up recently when we, when we uh, revisited um, Exorcist is that, you know, I, I, I saw that when I was younger and I you know, my my brain did not process it the way it's intended. And when I was younger, when I saw E.T., I didn't see this necessarily like loving, cuddly, um extraterrestrial movie. I was just like so focused on the darker stuff, including the hospital scene um, and the invasion of the military. Like, it almost clouded up my ability to enjoy the movie when I was younger. Um, and rewatching it as an adult, I think it's another masterpiece. I really do. There's just nothing I can say that doesn't work in E.T. But when I was younger, for some reason, my brain was just like, uh uh-uh, uh, I can't do this. It's I, not for me. I and can I, understand that. I, yeah. Uh, I've talked in the past about how Temple of Doom was a super,
0: super influential movie for me that I watched a million times. And the funny way it influenced me was I think it made me a fan of horror films, Yeah, <laughs> even though I wouldn't necessarily call Temple of Doom a horror film. Obviously, it has a lot of horrific elements and very violent content. But it, I think overall it's much more of an advent- – it's just a darker kind of adventure. But now that I think about it, like I think a lot of Spielberg probably primed me to be into horror films because like – Even the opening of ET, when you don't know what the aliens are, the way it's shot through ferns and they're just kind of shadowy figures and they're making weird kind of grunting sounds and and the way John Williams' music sounds like that is really creepy. Like this, the idea of like these kind of figures in the woods somewhere that's you know that's less than a mile from your home, you know, Um, like that. Like there's a lot in and and then obviously like even when the I always call them astronauts because of the suits they're wearing. But yeah. when the scientists sort of come into Elliot's home um, and they have their arms outstretched, kind of like they're zombies or what, like, and like the way that's all played is very scary. And I think a lot of Spielberg's instincts are just so about because uh, he just loves getting audience reactions. Um, and I think maybe it, it might even be a fault of his that he found out that later you can get easier audience reactions by spending a lot of money on special effects and by really ch- cranking up John Williams' music. But I think earlier Steven Spielberg, like before he had kids, like he loved goosing, you know, he loved to just goose audiences with terror, with scares and... Well, he like, got, I
1: mean, he, he admits, you know, he got hooked on, on that sort of, you know, mass hysteria when he, when he was doing and previewing Jaws to audiences and, you know, when, when uh, the, you know, there's a... Um, there's a moment in Jaws, I forgot which what what moment he said, but you know the, the audience jumped, and he's he said, "Okay, well, I want to go back into the editing, and I want to get that reaction again from the audience with this scene. And if we just time it right, we can do it." And then he found like you know that once he scared them once, he couldn't scare them uh, you know <laughs> like that anymore during the movie because the audience didn't trust him anymore. You know, <laughs> uh, so so I mean he yeah he's definitely he definitely plays his movies definitely are made to play. To, you know most of them are made to play to a mass audience you know Empire of the Sun is obviously an exception um, maybe uh, Munich is another one um, and I you know for as far as ET goes I mean <laughs> you know I said Empire of the Sun made a big impression on me when I was younger ET made the impression on me. Um, it was the movie that got me into movies. It was, you know, the movie that set me off, you know, obs- getting obsessed about movies and, you know, looking in the newspaper every day and seeing, you know, what movies were coming out. And, you know, basically, it, it in it, it is it basically just made me a geek. Um, I had liked movies before that. I had I knew who Steven Spielberg was before that, but it was E. T. that just like really tapped into something in me and just made me, you know, a movie fan for life and I knew something, I was going to do something with my life, with movies because of that film and, and also, E.T. is also another one of those movies, especially that scene that you mentioned, Patrick, the opening is one of those great examples of Spielberg as a visual storyteller. There are a lot of uh. scenes in his movies where if you watch them with the sound turned down, you know exactly what's going on, you know exactly you know, what Is at stake, Um, and that opening scene in ET is one of them. You watch that movie with the sound turned down, and it's still powerful. Um, And I think that's another one of his strengths as a filmmaker is just you know using images to tell the story uh, and not just dialogue. And uh, yeah, ET is a great example of that. That whole and so and so it's close encounters. Yeah, yeah, that whole
0: that whole first ten minutes of ET is I some of the greatest filmmaking i've ever seen not just not just the the chase where you never see the adult's faces you just see their key like that that oh that that just inclusion of the key ring is mm-hmm. so oh. good that is that is such a great specific it's so imposing and it tells you a little bit about what this person is but not a lot and it's it's a great signifier later so again you never have to see his face um, and you still know who he is it's so great but even again in the kitchen when you see Elliot in the background, he clearly wants to play, but he's not being included, and he's lonely. And his mom, you know, it, she has a lot on her mind, and everything about that opening, like ten, fifteen minutes of ET, is brilliant to me. The moment you're talking about in Jaws was the the moment in the boat uh, where they go find the sunken boat, and the oh, head yeah. pops out. Yeah, that is brilliant. That moment. When I watched it uh, So uh, Regina, my partner Had, oh, yeah. had never had never seen Jaws In its entirety um, She had seen like bits and pieces of it So we were like, oh, let's watch Jaws So we, were, we weren't even in a theater We were just lying in bed with a laptop on my lap Watching <laughs> Jaws And the brilliance of that moment is The head appears um, The head it slowly kind of fades into view Before you know what it is And then by the time your brain processes what it is That's when the horns come in John Will- The John Williams score is just – if you watch that scene, it's just a little bit delayed. Um, and just when you're like, oh my god, that's a – and then it goes, bah! <laughs> like at that exact moment. Regina flipped out. It was amazing. It was so great to see that so many years later, that's still just like one of the greatest jump scares ever. um Yeah, that's – he I, – I really like that about – I mean I really respond to that uh, part of him. And uh, I still think he is very good at um, telling stories visually. Only problem is a lot of the time now it ends up uh, being more like a sequence. Like I think Tintin isn't a great movie at all because I think the story in that film is very convoluted and not particularly interesting. Um, But the the final kind of final sequence at the end with the tank – Um, and sort of all that huge public destruction and it's like I think most of it is one tracking shot Um, not that you know it's even a tracking shot because it's all CG but you know what I mean like that all like that's how you tell us that's how you tell a story visually um, is that sequence and I still think even in lesser Spielberg movies there are sequences that are just brilliant Um,
2: oh yeah and you're going to come across those later on as well I guarantee it like there's there's stuff in Minority Report that is just as good as some of the things he did in, early in his career. And can I? Oh, can I? Can I do one more confession, real quick? Mm-hmm. I know
0: we got to we got to wrap things up, but um, uh, I have never. I have very purposefully, um, and I'm going to go ahead and just preface this by saying I know I'm dumb. So yes, I'm being <laughs> dumb, but I've purposefully never watched Schindler's List. Because I'm afraid I won't like it. And I'll be that guy who doesn't like Schindler's List. Oh,
2: no. Pa- Patrick, me and Colin know somebody who doesn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but. <laughs> uh,
2: I just. Yeah, there, yeah, I, know, I, know I, I know I'm being dumb. <laughs> but there's just something in
0: the back of my head that says. Uh, a movie that everyone agrees is great about the Holocaust. They're probably responding to the subject matter and not the film.
1: I do not agree. Yeah. with yeah. no, no, I'm.
0: Well, I'm going to I'm I'm setting that up. Yeah, I'm setting that up now because I'm going to watch it for the second episode and I will report back to see how and I will eat crow. I'll eat my hat. I'll eat my hat and it'll be full of crows. I'll eat, and with a side of humble pie, I will admit I was wrong. But I'm just saying that right now so it's yeah. on the record. That's why I've never watched that film and that's how I feel.
1: I, you know, I mean, I, I I do understand that kind of hesitation with a mm-hmm. movie that is so is so highly revered is that. I am not a huge fan of Saving Private Ryan. I I, I never I, I always thought I I, I I think the technique of the movie is you know masterful. I mean, obviously those that that opening scene is how <gasps> you know, brutal and what one of the greatest. I mean, one of the most amazing pieces of, of, you know, combat ever committed to film. Um, And, you know, it was groundbreaking. It it changed the way people made war films. And I totally respect it for that. I was just never a fan of the script. And it was just one of those movies that just felt too obvious to me, like... As soon you know, before the movie came out, I looked at the poster. You know, saw the title and saw the characters on it. And I'm like, I know exactly what this movie is about. I know exactly what's going to happen in it. I know exactly what the movie is thematically going to tell me, and I was right about everything. It was just one of those movies where I was like, God, I wish I wish I was surprised more by what this movie was, but I just wasn't. I'm just I I don't actively dislike it. It's just I never thought it was one of it was it that is not one of my desert Island Spielberg movies, I'm surprised like it is a lot of other people by the, the the action sequences
2: and the fact that like he doesn't rely on his usual Spielberg um tr- you know kind of tropes and things yeah. that he's you know done in the past um like there's just a collection of sequences and moments that blow my mind in that movie sure and I will agree there are definitely tendencies for the script to you know uh, give you the characters that you would come to expect in a war movie and have them interact in a certain way that you expect in a war movie and you you know even just their mission isn't anything like spectacular and even they groan about it throughout the movie but for some reason um, in terms of it just being an effective tension-building war movie with just incredible sequences. I, I was surprised. Maybe I was just um, thinking back to the backlash that came from the movie, too. I just remember... there a backlash on I,
1: Never
2: I would say so. I, I, I was just focusing so much on how people were saying, like, oh, it's so sentimental, and Uh-oh. that, you know, the, the bookends... I, I just remember... People kind of getting down on it after was getting all the awards and stuff, um, and you know that being in mind, I wound up appreciating it way more than I did the first time. And maybe I was watching on Blu-ray with headphones and hearing that incredible sound design. Maybe I appreciated way more on a technical level than anything else. But it it's still you know it's it's definitely in my you know top. Maybe seven Spielberg movies, <laughs> which is going to be hard to do for us to do a top three. And how Patrick do- and I were kind of debating how we oh, should approach
0: uh, that. I, so Jim wants to do it because this episode we're covering earlier Spielberg, and next episode we're covering later of using Jurassic Park as a as a as a dividing line, and this episode giving our top three pre Jurassic Park and next episode giving our top three post-Jurassic yeah.
1: Park that's um, still tough. Yeah, my, tough
0: my problem with that is I am not nearly as passionate about Spielberg post-Jurassic Park um, so yeah, there's
2: still some you have to
0: see you know. no, that, no that's true I might, I might again I might change my tune um, but uh, if you want to do pre-Jurassic Park Jim we can go ahead and do that because that's my top three Spielberg anyway <laughs> <laughs>
2: well then it works perfectly um Okay, number one is Jaws, number two is Close Encounters, number three is E.T. That simple.
1: <laughs> uh, let me see here. Okay, one is E.T., uh, two uh, might be Empire of the Sun, really. Hmm. Um, and three, God... Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say Jaws just because of what, like, what, you, what you said. Jim. I mean, it would, it's a toss-up between Jaws and Close Encounters. I'm going to lean towards Jaws just because of the hell that it took to make that movie. Mm-hmm. And the movie on screen shows no signs of panic or fatigue or anything. Like you said, Jim, it looks effortless. But knowing like, that it <laughs> was anything but that. Uh, and I get endless amounts of of pleasure watching all the, you know the 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 documentaries on on the Blu-ray about the making of the movie. Um, so yeah, uh, E.T., Empire of the Sun, Jaws. I guess those would be my top three for 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 pre Jurassic Park. Maybe ever. You might be right, Patrick. It might it might uh that might that might be the top three of all time for me.
0: Um, for me, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and put an asterix on Close Encounters saying pending because it was my favorite <laughs> and then this last rewatch this being the first time I saw theatrical um, it dropped tremendously in my eyes so uh, pending and again I'll, re- I'll return in the next episode and report back on, on how I feel about Close Encounters after I watch the other two versions again but right now my top three Spielbergs are number one E.T. number two Jaws um, number three Raiders of the Lost Ark
1: yeah yeah, it's like it's, it's kind of hard to make a wrong list, you know. The only yeah. the, it, the only wrong thing would be to put Hook in your top three. I mean, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: that won't happen. Yeah. Wow, this was great. Thanks, Colin, so much for I, joining I, us again.
1: A lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah,
2: yeah thanks for being uh, on. Where Where can we read some more of your stuff? And uh, I know you're working on a new short film. And I've been doing a
1: lot. Yeah, I've been doing more filming and talking than writing. So. Nice. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you can hear me actually, well, tonight tonight being Saturday night, every Saturday night on Nick DiGillio's show on WGN radio at ten thirty uh for the uh, Saturday night movie reviews. Um you can go to multiheadproductions.com dot com uh to see some of my filmmaking stuff. And uh yeah, that's and I, I will have a new short film sometime. In the spring of this year, submitting to festivals uh, throughout 2014 and 2015, and you know we'll see what happens with that.
2: Great, can't wait, man. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Colin. We'll All talk right. to you soon. All righty, bye bye. Bye bye.
0: And of uh, course, you can find us Directors Club Podcast at gmail dot com. It's true. Send us an email about a Spielberg film that you love. We like getting emails.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, it brightens up our
2: tremendously dreary day. We, we love hearing from you. We would love to receive some uh, voicemails, which we don't get as much, so it would be great if you would give us a call at 224 uh, um, 366 And you can find me over at Instant Jim on Twitter and Letterbox.
0: And uh, you can find my viewing journal, MarthaMarcyNashAndYoung.wordpress.com. And, Young dot, uh, and uh, I'm on Letterbox now. I've gone Woo-hoo! ahead and I'm, gonna, I'm putting all of my reviews and everything uh, from that viewing journal, or at least my current ones. I'm not going to go backtrack and put every one I've ever written, um, which is now over 550, by the way. So uh, quite, a, quite a few uh, capsule reviews I've written there. Um, but I'm also on Letterboxd at just Patrick PatrickRappoll.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Patrick Propol. So
2: Patrick, who is our next director?
0: Oh, it's Spielberg
2: again Oh Yeah Joining us this time will be Eric Childress
0: And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be another fun episode Because me and Eric Childress almost never agree <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed and, and I anticipate that to continue Because I uh, am not a huge fan of Latter-day Spielberg
2: Oh, but you're a huge fan of the Latter-day Saints.
0: Yes, certainly. I I'm a I'm a, I'm a Mormon first and foremost.
2: Mhm.
0: Um yeah, no, it's it's actually one of the things I thought about when I was watching Empire of the Sun is how it's basically the same story as AI.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I could
0: see that. Mhm. Uh anyway, if anyone tries to convince me that AI is a masterpiece on the next episode, there's going to be some words.
2: Maybe I'll ask Eric if he wants to talk about that later in the show. That might be yeah, fun. Cause, cause, uh, I think it's okay. I um, like it.
0: I it, I think it. I think okay is a good word for it.
2: Yeah. Um. I'm I'm excited for both Minority Report and Munich. Um, two films that I have issues with, but I haven't watched them in a while, so I'm excited to see them again. Do you have issues with Munich because you supported the bombing? <laughs> <laughs> No, I have issues with the sex scene that like ends the movie. Oh, I'm sorry. Never mind. I don't want to say that now because I don't think you've seen it yet.
0: Okay. I've seen it. I've seen it. It came, oh. out on, it came out on DVD when I worked at Blockbuster, but I haven't oh, nice. seen it since, and I remember very little other than the sex scene at the end.
2: Yeah, that was dumb. <laughs> um, okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks for yet another edition of Steven Spielberg. Thanks, everybody.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye.
2: I think Colin's here hello hello is Patrick Hi. here I am here oh I got Colin let me add Patrick yeah I sure have and you there oh <laughs> yeah I'm here oh. <laughs> we're closing the show Jim I know <laughs> Oh my god, I spaced out for a second. I hate when that happens. Like, my brain just shuts down to temporarily. I'm like, yeah!